Neither the name 007 nor any other name or character in this podcast is meant to betray a real company or actual person because it's a podcast and not a character or company or actual person. Yeah. again to Double Oz 7, a James Bond podcast as we come to you today with a view dot, 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 to a kill. Thanks, Mayday. We are into the 14th Eon film of the James Bond series. We've put away the shit that was never say never again. We've had the Battle of the Bonds and we're now back into the good stuff. And a lot to talk about this episode because not only are we on a blimp, not only do we have Mayday and Christopher Walken, we also have uh, the last appearance of a couple of staples in the James Bond universe, including one person who's done about 17,000 films, which is about half of them, and somebody who, well, we've joked about her a little bit, but she's never coming back because, sadly, Lois Maxwell is dead. But we are here, of course, to talk about... I don't know why I'm saying it so far. Jeez. I'm just begging out Lois Maxwell straight away. Started off with such a serious start to this uh, podcast. My name is Ben, and I'm happiest in the saddle. And I'm Colin, and the bubbles also tickle my Tchaikovsky. <laughs> and I'm Noe Flex. And, um, yes, all right. Good start, gentlemen. Good start. Um, a view to a kill. It is a 14th. Good start. Lois Maxwell is dead. <laughs> it's not funny. Jeez, I'd love to hear a bad start from you. It's sad. It's very sad. Um, a view to a kill. Uh, Roger Moore's seventh and final outing as Agent 007, James Bond. A film that is, um, not often loved too much in the James Bond universe, but... Perhaps we'll find out a few arguments for it in this uh, in this episode, including from me. We start off with our initial thoughts on the film, and I freaking love this movie. I said at the end of Never Say Never Again that um, I'm a I'm a bit of an apologist for this film. We all kind of have those James Bond movies that we all just have a real liking to, and this is one of them. I enjoyed it thoroughly on this rewatch. I've seen this movie a fair few times, but. Um, yeah, I, I even actually found myself, I think, watching this movie not paying too much attention to Grandpa Moore. 
uh, considering off the back of Never Say Never Again when I said I would never bag him out for his age again. So I actually thought Roger Moore looked very youthful in this movie. But, um, yes, it, it's it's great. It's fun. It's got one of the best James Bond villains in the history of James Bond. It's got one of the best henchmen in the history of henchmen. And it's got one of the worst uh, Bond girls in the history of Bond girls. But um, it's all forgiven because it's got Christopher Walken in it. But I love this film. I can't wait to talk about it. Well, I enjoy this film. Um, I don't know if I'd say I love it. Uh, it's it's kind of interesting. This is one of the first Bond movies I ever saw, and uh, when I did see it, I loved the movie. But you know, in the years since, ever, ever since I've started watching all the other movies, I've always kind of ranked this near the bottom for my favorite Bond movies. Um, but at the same time. You know, you have those group of Bond movies at the bottom, and this was always the one where I could enjoy it and not really be bothered by a lot of the mistakes in the movie and uh, things that should have been done better. There are a lot of things in this movie that, as I was watching it this time, I came up with an instant rewrite that could have made the movie a lot better. Um, I'm not uh, walking on sunshine like Ben is. Uh, I, I don't really get... I, I My opinion of Christopher Walken is that he gets way too much credit for this movie just because he's Christopher Walken, and nobody really realizes this is probably the worst and most boring performance Christopher Walken's ever had. Uh, but he's not, he's not a terrible villain at the same time. Uh, overall, there's a lot of really fun stuff in this, and I said it at the end of our Never Say Never Again. This is kind of the end of classic Bond, and in a way it was returned to like the 60s style of you know entertainment and uh, a little bit of class and dignity back to the series. But uh, yeah, still will probably end up being my least favorite Roger Moore, but we'll see when we look at the rankings later. Uh, I kind of agree with Colin with a sprinkle of Ben in there. Um... I've always enjoyed it a lot more probably than the average viewer when I was younger. I, I also believe it's one of the earliest more ones I saw. And I did have this one on VHS. Um, there are some stuff I genuinely like about this, but I feel like every time I watch it, it just goes down in my rankings. And this was no exception to that. Um, it Again, it's one of those ones, and I say it a lot, it's one of those ones that I can always put on and enjoy. It's not like I hate this film or anything like that, and Survivor, uh, not Survivor, um, <laughs> James Bond is like Pete. I've never seen Survivor. What's what Survivor? <laughs> James Bond is like Survivor, that's Roger Moore, like 68 during this film. Um, <laughs> He's a survivor in this film. <laughs> <laughs> Roger Moore's a survivor. Um, yeah, but James Bond is like pizza. Even when it's bad, it's good. But um, yeah, there's just a lot. Like, I think we're going to have a tough time in the Hall of Fame. Um, and this film is seriously lacking some action. And not that I feed off big action sequences, but like, seriously, this of all the films is lacking a lot of that. Um, I feel like a lot of the humor is gone and some scenes just drag on and on and on. But in saying that, I think we're firmly established that I'm not too much of a fan of those more down-to-earth, um, like, uh, Christato stuff, like, I'm, and the Daniel Craig ones, I'm much more on the bandwagon of over-the-top Goldfinger, Dr. No, those type of villains, Blofeld. So... It is a welcome return to have a memorable villain and a henchwoman. Um, 
But yeah, I've got mixed opinions on this film a lot, and I I'm probably going to sound pretty negative throughout this, but I still really do enjoy this film, though. We are going to disagree on so many things in this film. I can I can guarantee that. Um, I mean, personally, I think. I think Moonraker would have been the first more one I would have seen, and this would have been closely followed afterwards. But, I mean, from a personal fan perspective of James Bond movies, I mean, I really struggle to find any film from now on into what we're going to be talking about in the next 10 or so episodes that I dislike. Um, you know, I mean, obviously... I can. <laughs> I guarantee both of you will. But, I mean, when it comes to, obviously, the Craig films, it's a different way of talking about Bond films. But I, I really just... I mean, my ranking is going to change a shitload in the next 10 episodes, basically, with the way we look forward to these. Um, the, the interesting thing, I thought, just with Roger Moore, of course, his last film, he's 57 during this uh, this James Bond film, which, um, <laughs> you know, three years away from being 60. But I, I love the fact, I was just reading a lot of the trivia on this film, and Roger Moore came out and said he decided to end his run as James Bond when he realised that uh, Tanya Roberts is, of course, uh, in this movie, uh, who does play the dear old Bond girl uh, in Stacey Sutton, uh, he was older than her mother. Um, so <laughs> he decided, maybe I'm a bit too old to play James Bond after he realised he was older than the mother of the main Bond Well, girl. that didn't stop him with BB. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, Roger, come on. I would have I would have thought that Moore would have realized he was too old to play James Bond based on the fact that all, the only fight scenes he gets in this movie are with men who are already past retirement age. <laughs> and it's probably not even him doing them at that point. Yeah. He was one film away from having like a walking frame off um, with like a Bond villain or something like that. Um, now, we get started in this film with a gun barrel. Oh, wait, no, we don't. We get a disclaimer. <laughs> Um, the first time we ever see this weird disclaimer beforehand, because apparently, um, the producers found out that there was a real life Zoran company, um, not a Zoran. So they thought they've come out and done the good thing. And I've written it down here that says, neither the name Zoran nor any other name or character in this film is meant to betray a real company or actual person. Don't they usually put that at the end of movies anyway? Or was this maybe before they did that? Well, where's the disclaimer in every film? Uh, this is not the same James Bond as the esteemed author of Birdwatching. Uh, was, he was not a secret agent. <laughs> this is not the esteemed um, Holly Goodhead who actually... <laughs> it, it is actually a little bit odd that they would have to put this disclaimer. I think I can kind of see it from both sides. On one side... If they were using a you know copywritten name, if the company were called Zorin and not Zoran, as he said, then I could understand having to put it up front. But at the same time, I think the issue that came up was that they didn't realize there was this company. It was pretty late in production. And if you do a quick Google search on Zoran Corporation, you realize that they do exactly what Zoran Corporation does. <laughs> so I could understand if they all of a sudden came forward and said, wait, I saw in that trailer you have a Zoran Corporation. And the man is, you know, killing people for no reason and uh, wants to destroy Silicon That's Valley. What we do. <laughs> yeah. We're the ones who destroy Silicon Valley. Damn it, our plan. Oh, we can't do it anymore. Bond. <laughs> Let's fire um, our pop singer that we've also got acting for us. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's fascinating, really. And if anything, maybe did it not boost the profile of the Zoran company? 
like, people going, oh, Mildred, what's that company? What did they have to put this disclaimer up for? And, you know, well, they didn't have Google in the 80s, so they, you know, went to the library to the encyclopedia or something like that. But, like, it's, you know. Microchips skyrocketed uh, on the market <laughs> after this film. Just like the Lotus Very influential. Did, just like the Lotus did after the Spy Who Loved Me, microchip sales went through the roof. Horsey microchip steroid <laughs> Racing at Ascot went up through the roof. <laughs> Blimp a very sales. influential film of his work, yeah. <laughs> Blimp sales. Everybody in the 80s had a blimp. Um, <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah, just like the jet ski, it launched the blimp market. <laughs> and you should have seen what happened to the snowboarding market after a 57-year-old Roger Moore was on it. Seniors everywhere. Well, you, jo- you joke about snowboarding there, Colin, but we'll get to that in a moment. Um, the opening scene, now, obviously, our last ever Roger Moore gun barrel. Was this a newly filmed Roger Moore one? Did this look different to anybody, or was that just me? Because it... Oh. No, just... I think it's, it's the not... exact same one. Right. Well, I was yeah. noticing how young he looked in it. Okay, right. Definitely wasn't not. coming out in a walking stick or anything like that. Um, <laughs> so, we get a we get a helicopter panning over. We're in Siberia. I've written here two Russian shits um, in a helicopter. Um... <laughs> Flying around, incidentally, filmed in Iceland. Just a little tip out there. Hello, die another day. Um, and yeah, we see Bond, um, or is it a grandpa? No, it's Bond. And he's digging through the snow, finds a body. Turns out, of course, that it will be 003, um, who. In a clown costume. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, he's in, he's in a bottomal snowman. I can't even say it. Bigfoot. Uh, goofy movie throwback. Um, Yeti. <laughs> Yeti. Uh, helicopter flying over, looking for Bond. Um, they see him. Bond grabs a little uh, chip out of the, um, the love heart necklace. And a lovely little family shot there of 003's wife. She's no doubt going to come back in like the Bond 25 as a... As a love interest for Craig, um, or like 80-year-old uh, Roger Moore. Uh, and then we get a lovely little chase, uh, helicopter going after Bond, um, shooting his skis off. And uh, Bond turns Grand Theft Auto, steals a little snowmobile thing, which also uh, gets destroyed, blown up. It's like a three-blind mice car. Um and this lovely little sequence, of course, um, we should point out a little uh, bit of extra music in this scene. Um, <laughs> we get the snowboard and we get some Beach Boys, which I know you two are probably going... I don't know actually what your thoughts are on that, but this is weird that I actually really love this moment, considering how much I bagged out Moonraker for its over-the-top shit. Um, I fucking love this scene <laughs> with California girls playing. It's just, it's just hilarious. I love it so much. Um, Bond ends up blowing up the helicopter with a flare and, um, then he gets in a removable iceberg and, um, puts it in automatic and, um, has five days to bone some random woman in an iceberg on the way to Alaska. I, I enjoy this opening sequence. It's not one of the best, but it's sort of middle ground in terms of where it is it's not a terrible one we get bloody beach boys and um snowboarding and a and a portable iceberg iceberg what can't you love about this colin well yeah i mean I, I, as i said i don't love this movie but i don't have a lot of complaints about it and believe it or not i actually really like the opening sequence too this is one of the things that always hooked me on the movie like when i saw it the first time as a teenager um having not seen a lot of classic Bond movies and having never seen a Roger Moore movie, uh, this was the sequence that I always remembered. And it probably took a couple of years before I rewatched A View to a Kill. And the whole time I was like, oh yeah, A View to a Kill, that was the one with the great skiing and stuff and the, the snowboard. The California girls 
it's something that bothers a lot of people. And I think that it would have bothered me more if this were in the middle of the movie. But being a pre-title scene, it's just supposed to be fun. Like, I don't care how goofy they get. Uh, Bond on a snowboard, California Girls. I mean, this in the middle of the movie drags the movie down. This in a pre-title scene, which does have a small connection to the plot. But at this point, you could just view this and feel like, okay, this sequence is going to be over in three minutes. So no real issue for me. Uh, uh, the little iceberg thing, uh, <laughs> maybe a little bit too over the top uh, uh, compared to you know the rest of the sequence, which is like we've talked up a lot of the ski scenes before. And uh, Willie Bogner is the guy who's responsible for all of the ski scenes in James Bond. And you know, he did a great job. On, obviously, on a magic secret service can never be topped. Uh, Fear Eyes only had really good ski stuff. This is not the best ski scene that we've ever seen for Bond, but it's still impressive. And I think if people take out the Bathoberg or whatever it is at the end and they take <laughs> out California Girls, uh, they'd find that this sequence is probably one of the more entertaining uh, pre-title scenes. Yeah, this is just kind of like a meh one. Like I don't have much bad stuff to say about it, but it's not one of the best. But if you ask my 10-year-old self about the pre-titles ones, this was always one that stood out and was memorable to me. So uh, for some reason or another, but it's kind of short and not a huge amount going on. Um, ben, I think you and I are the only James Bond fans in the history of ever to enjoy the Beach Boys <laughs> scene. So we're officially being the blacklisted podcast that no one will listen to anymore. But Virtual, po- I, virtual fist bump. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's fun like it's just he's <laughs> snowboarding over like this little ice thing and it's playing the beach boys um, and it's roger moore like 60 years old like it's fun like i people really need to lighten up with james bond it's just it's supposed to be a fun thing um and people like this is one of the most hated like bond things ever but it's just weird that people get so hung up on some of the smallest things. Like, yeah, the slide whistle is dumb, but it's like 10 seconds long. And yeah, this people might not like, but it's literally like 10 seconds long. People are so hung up about it. Double take pigeon is one second long. Um, and I find this funny. Um, the ISO sub or Barthoberg, um, that doesn't bother me. I think, find it funny it's just over the top campy bond i enjoy all that stuff um so it's a fine uh pre-title sequence but it's not one of the best but yeah the beach boy was i always enjoy that scene i don't get why it gets so much hate it's just why does everything have to be always be so serious you know i I really think that um i don't know whether it was you know or colin who mentioned might struggle to find scenes for the hall of fame (laughs) i would honestly nominate beach boy we would get ripped shreds if that made it but um i just yeah like i kind of feel like a bit of a hypocrite given how much i hated on moonraker for this sort of stuff but i i'm I'm with you i like a bit silly but as i said a moonraker not way too silly like you know, and I, I think this is just a, a brief glimmering moment that is just fantastic, and yeah, I, d- I just love it. It's not actually; it's a it's a cover. I don't I can't remember who actually is singing it. Um, it's not the Beach Boys version, and it's not sadly on the soundtrack. 
Um, but apparently, uh, Colin, you joked about the snowboarding, but it did actually spark a little bit of interest in snowboarding. I mean, it wasn't sort of the film that showed snowboarding for the first time, but I mean, you know, snowboarding was sort of fairly new in the 1980s. So, um, you know, James Bond, Roger Moore, Grandpa Moore is um, <laughs> involved in the history of snowboarding. I expect to see him at the Olympics in um, Pyeongchang in a couple of years' time. But anyway... Um, it leads into actually before we get into that many credits, do we know who is random girl in in ISO sub? Do we ever know who she is? Just random Bond Lay seven hundred and sixty-three. Seven hundred sixty-three. So is on the line. Um, yeah, Agent sixty-nine. Or Agent sixty-nine. All right, good. Um, yeah, we get into the, the title sequence, and I'm just laying it out in the line here. I don't care if you two disagree with me, because this is going to be exactly the same in about six films' time. This is one of my... This top five for me, Bond songs, maybe even top three. I feckin' love this song so much. Um, Noah, you mentioned in Live and Let Die that... You listen to Bond songs, but outside of the Bond songs, you can just listen to Live and Let Die just as a song on its own without having to listen to other Bond songs. I can I can listen to A View to a Kill by itself, not even have it as, a, you know, a Bond playlist. It's amazing. It's epic. Duran Duran, you know, such a big band of the 80s, one of the biggest bands in the world at the time. Um, I was reading the story about kind of how they came about to actually record this. Their bassist, John Taylor, apparently went up to Cubby Broccoli at a party, drunk off his nuts, and uh, said to him, when are you going to get somebody <laughs> decent to do one of your theme songs? <laughs> and um, there it went. And apparently there's a bit of controversy. They were saying, like, well, we didn't want to go with a pop band to do a, a Bond song. But um, hugely successful. Probably the most successful Bond song in terms of charting. It's the only Bond song to ever make it to number one in the US. Um, made it to number two in the UK, which was the highest uh, until, sadly, Sam Smith uh, writings on the wall, which obviously went to number one. But uh, number one in Canada, huge, huge, huge song. Um, and the the credits as well. Look, I don't actually mind them. I think we, we mentioned a little bit about Oof. the 80s, how they kind of have pretty woeful opening title credit sequences. I, I love the boobs, <laughs> like the cleavage. <laughs> you knew I was going to like that. Um, we we have like lots of neon light glows, and um, we get you know a woman actually dancing in the fire. Colin was hoping she would burn to death at some point. <laughs> um, <laughs> we get the same old Roger Moore shot from the Spy Who Loved Me used again. That's a bit you know oh. old cycle. And then all of a sudden we get ribbons. Um, it's a bit strange. Probably makes a little bit more sense an octopusy because we've actually got somebody doing something that they mention in the lyrics of the song. But not the best, but I think maybe the best of the 80s. I don't know, but the song just wins this for me, hands down. Yeah, um, I'm not quite as high on it as you are, uh, but I do think that a lot of things work well. The funny thing is that, I mean, you said Duran Duran's about as big as it got at this point, and you could argue that if you still took every single artist who had ever done a Bond song and you put them on a list together that every person would list Duran Duran in the top five biggest there. But I don't think this is like the greatest Duran Duran song ever. I mean, it, it's a good Bond song because it's different. Uh, but if you were looking at Duran Duran's entire catalog, this doesn't rank as one of their best songs. Having said that, I usually kind of pick this as like, oh, it's an average Duran Duran song instead of looking at how good is it as a Bond song. And 
I could not get this song on my head the entire day yesterday. Um, and it, it, it doesn't really sound like any other Bond theme, but it's not Die Another Day where it's just like, what is this? It's, it, it's, you could still imagine that this could have been influential if they had not gone back to the old school style. This could have been influential for years later. And the way that Nobody Does It Better gave us the, the, uh, uh, for your eyes only and all time high imitations that this could have been imitated later. Uh, the title sequence is okay. Well, I would it's argue it was okay. in the next for Living Daylights. Well, yeah, it, I think Living it was Daylights imitated was too well, but it, it was a, too slow of a song. I think more the fact that we have an upbeat song finally, you know, for the first time since Live and Let Die. Uh, but the title sequence I think is okay again. Uh, it, it probably would play better if it didn't look so 80s and that's the unfortunate thing with some decades is that it, it just is painfully stuck in that decade you know this is not something that anybody could do now if you did these titles for specter people are like what's with the 1985 free title to this go to the cinema and see this over writings on the wall <laughs> yeah see luminescent paint all over people's boobs glowing so uh, dildo but it's something different it's not the same thing we've been seeing for these title scenes over and over again you know minus the recycled shot of more which is put in here only to confuse people into thinking that they're not seeing 57 year old man um the, the paint's a cool idea i think um yeah i don't necessarily think a view to a kill is a good song in my personal music listening um experience i think it's like cheesy 80s like ugh. but i do think it is one of the best bond songs though like it just fits everything so well and like it just fits like espionage spy like it has that feeling like the opening dun, dun, mm. dun, 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 like is really like fits and then as it kicks into it um so I do think it's like a cheesy 80s film. I'm not a Duran Duran fan or much of the music from the 80s, but um, I do think it is one of, I would say, top 10. It's just unique, but it fits everything so well. Again, though, and I, this isn't to take away from it because even the best Spawn songs are like this, but the lyrics are just nonsense. <laughs> um, like A Sacred Why, A Mystery Gaping Inside, the weekends, why? <laughs> Until we dance into the fire. The fatal kiss is all we need. Um, it's bad lyrics, but so is most Bond songs, um, especially Rains on the Wall. But anyway, um, the intro, yeah, I'm not as high on it as you guys. It was, was glow-in-the-dark paint just discovered in 1985 or something. It's just... And, like, it's... It's a snow-themed intro, and like that's what the pre-titles was. And you're thinking, oh yeah, this film's going to be all about the snow. This is on Emergency Secret Service too. And then, like, why does it have so much snow stuff? Because the rest of the film has no snow stuff in it. But you've got people skiing, you've got wind and everything here, and like a girl dancing with strips of toilet paper blowing off of her. Like, oh <laughs> uh, no, I don't like this one. Although most of the '80s ones are pretty sucky, but. Yeah, I don't think this is good. Like, 
newly discovered glow-in-the-dark paint and snow-themed that doesn't fit the film and toilet paper. What's funny, actually, you mentioned about the snow theme. I don't know if either of you um, went and watched the trailers for it on the on the DVD, but the, pretty much each of the trailers leads with, like, silhouettes of skiers skiing on, like, a woman's body. Um, so, like, they really try to sell the uh, the skiing element part of it, um, which <laughs> is only in it for the opening scene. And we had that ice woman in the opening bit as well. Like, it was... It was strange, but yeah, I think it's a real, like, personally, I love the 80s and sort of 80s culture and all that sort of stuff, so maybe that's kind of where I love it. And just, I mean, the song, I think, is quintessentially 80s, and you made a good point there, Noah, kind of going into the next film, how that sounds on an 80s level. I think this and Living Daylights are just 80s songs on their own, and look, bag me at all you want for Die Another Day, but I mean, that was trying to be something of the era, and... Bond songs don't necessarily do that, you know, perfectly a lot of the times because Bond has a has a sound to it. Um, so yeah, as in two thousand and two. But yeah, these these are this is definitely one of those films that really is selling the the music of the the day with the song. I feel so. Um, and probably you would argue, maybe, Colin, you mentioned about sort of the, the biggest acts to ever do it. You might even argue, too, that Duran Duran were the biggest band in terms of right at the peak of their ability in 1985. Like, yeah, I love Madonna, but she wasn't as big as she was in 2002 as she mm, was in, like, the 80s. I would say Adele for that one. Yeah, yeah Adele, Adele definitely sense. up there. No, no, you're right. Like, it's it's kind of, you have a few that really were at the Not peak. that this isn't one, too, but... Yeah, yeah, but I mean, you know, Jack White, Alicia Keys. Not sure about Bassie's <laughs> career in 1960. Well, uh-huh. Uh, four. <laughs> anyway, all right. Uh, what are you laughing at? <laughs> lots of stuff. Um, all right, so we get into the uh, opening of the movie. We're basically straight into uh, Bond in um, the office, meeting up with uh, Granny Penny for the last time. Um, <laughs> she's... Uh, in this weird gown thing, which I thought was a nighty or something like that. Um, <laughs> and we we get the last ever more Lois Maxwell interaction in an office, um, which is a little bit sad. We have the hat, of course, on the hook. Uh, I love Lois Maxwell's acting when she, like, shrugs her arms up. Like, that was... Was I the only one who thought that was just rubbish? Anyway, uh, and we go into the office. We we see Q, we see M, we see uh, the new pet, a uh, lovely little robot, um, and we learn about microchips, um, how important they are, how it would be the Russians, of course, that would paralyze everything. It's only ever the Russians in the 80s that could, like, destroy the world. Um, but they've developed a microchip that's impervious to nuclear bombs, and it just so happens the Russians have also done the same with the help of Zorin Industries. And could Mr. Zorin be involved? No, that's impossible! But, or is it? I love the way that it's like, no, he's one of the biggest people of this, but he also was the one who, well, let's investigate him. And um, we kind of get this lead up to the fact that he's um, going to be at a horse race at Royal Ascot, more horses... Um, and he's got uh, 35 minutes to get get dressed. I might sort of end it there. We'll just briefly go over this bit before we get into um, Horses, what, the fourth film in a row or something like this? Um, but, yeah, really 80s still going on with microchips and computers and the lovely graphics of the uh, overlay of how these chips are basically, well, they are identical. Um, well, first of all, I'm 
totally on board with you. When they finally do give away a lifetime achievement Oscar for arm flailing, I think <laughs> Lois Maxwell's a lock. But uh, aside from that, uh, I really was kind of disappointed with this because I wish that for Roger, they had to have known this was Moore's final movie. I mean, there's no way they didn't. I know there's the story. It's like, well, in the middle of filming, he realized this, but they had to have known this was a guy who had already stepped down from the part after Fear Eyes Only. Uh, they knew that he wasn't coming back. And I just wish that for the final M scene, the final money penny scene, they'd planned something bigger. I'm assuming they also knew that Lois Maxwell well was done at this point. Uh, but yeah, there's just nothing going on in the scene. And I do like some of the things they throw out here that unfortunately they dropped from the movie. And I think my biggest criticism that I picked up on, on this rewatch is how the Russians just get sidelined. You said how it's, you know, always the Russians, but the idea of the Russians being involved in this is quite interesting. And I wish that they hadn't dropped it so quickly in the movie uh, because the setup to the plot here is interesting. It's just that it becomes something completely different. So when you're rewatching the movie, you're like, well, who cares about the Russians, you know? Um, yeah, I just wish, as Colin kind of said, that they must have known this was going to be her last one. I wish they did a bit more, but I guess it's a decent um, ending for money slash granny penny. Um, no Penelope Smallbone this week, but um, she did, yeah, she did all right for her last one. At least she had more to do. Like The Spy Loved Me, she had four lines, I'm pretty sure. And we learned that uh, maybe... Granny Penny like had to leave MI6 because of her gambling problem or something, but we'll get to that. Um, like, they had to get rid of her. Um, they couldn't have someone like that at MI6. But yeah, I just really they really dropped the ball with Lois Maxwell in pretty much the entire Roger Moore era, except for maybe Live and Let Die. And it's kind of upsetting because she was such an iconic character, and she's just relegated to one scene per film um when she, she and the the chemistry between her and Moore is just almost non-existent compared to connery and even lazenby um lazenby but yeah they had to get rid of her they couldn't keep going with this um like as you keep saying the, the kind of mean name but true Grady penny like <laughs> imagine her with dalton but i'm gonna go on and the record and would probably do an episode about the MI6 gang or something, but I'll go on the record here, and, and I know you'll probably disagree with this, but I don't think there has ever been another Money Penny after Lois Maxwell. Like M, we had Judy Dench, who's really good. Um, I don't think there has been another Money Penny. Obviously, there has been literally, but um, Samantha Bond, um, the Barry Manilow Money Penny, and Naomi Harris has potential, but we haven't seen it. Although at the time that this is released, Spectre probably Spectre Spectre probably has come out, and she was great in it. Um, but to me, Lois Maxwell is the only Money Penny. All of them are just don't do it for me personally. Well, she's no Pamela Salem from Never Say Never Again. Um, <laughs> but no, no, look, it's I like Samantha Bond. I'm going to defend Samantha Bond, but. Yeah, like, it's kind of like Bernard Lee. Like, I mean, I would maybe put more of an argument up for Judy Dench because I guess they, you know, develop her character more. But, um... I forgot her playing Money Penny. That was yeah, no, a great it was, era. You missed it. It was, um... <laughs> it was in a sort of one of those fanfic ones I was talking about, Never Say Never Again. Um, 
But yeah, no, I, I think really when we take this moment to eulogise um, Lois Max, well, not just because she's dead, but because this is obviously her last appearance. And but yeah, she went into this film knowing that this would be her last role as Money Penny. And actually, it's interesting to sort of read that Lois Maxwell actually went then to um, producers and basically said, "Well, why don't we turn Money Penny into M? Like, why doesn't she get?" Um, promoted into this role, and they basically were like, "No, they, no one would believe." Uh, no. They were like, "Nobody we'll think about work. it." But it was funny. They said nobody would believe M as a woman. Um, so <laughs> ten years later, but I mean, I believe M as a woman. I don't believe Money Penny as uh, M. Mm. But it, I, I found that fascinating. And apparently, last Maxwell even then suggested, "Okay, we'll kill Money Penny off." But um, <laughs> <laughs> fuck just you, go, Lois. Stop giving us these <laughs> ideas. Go. Yeah, nothing against Lois Maxwell, but she really did have an inflated opinion of Money Penny's importance in the franchise. <laughs> well, actually, it's funny. In, I mean, she was in it for fourteen films. Just under one hour of screen time, if you add it all up, and she delivered fewer than 200 words. Um, some of those words included, come on, flow, move your ass, which we will get to in just a few <laughs> moments. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of, I mean, Lois sadly died in 2007. I'm just reading here that she actually moved to Western Australia and she died in Australia. Um, there you go. Connection to us after being born in Canada. So here we go. Big connection to everyone here. Born in Canada. Did it just for Double Seven. And a Golden Globe award winning actress for New Star of the Year in 1947. The last time she looked young. Um, that. Oh, <laughs> come on. Candy Penny was bad, but that was not called. <laughs> I had to, I had to go there. Um, she looked young in Doctor I Mo. know, and yeah. I, she looked hot and dumb. She around. had it going on for at least the first decade yeah. of her three decades. <laughs> <laughs> she did look hot and diamonds are forever in that that um the uniform, but um the cop kind of. Uniform. We've obviously got a bit more to talk about Lois Maxwell because she's not completely out of this film yet. But um yeah, this is it. This is this is the end. Bye bye, Lois. No more money penny after this. Yeah, I mean, like you said, she's you know Canadian born, uh, died in Australia. Uh, we all have ties to Lewis Maxwell, uh, <laughs> but uh, she really just made an impression, I think, partly because she was the original. And uh, it's so hard to rank these you know, when you have actors take over the role, because is is Bernard Lee the greatest M or is he the greatest M because he's the original? You know, is Lewis Maxwell the greatest money penny or the he's greatest, the greatest M? Yeah. Yeah. Well, prop, <laughs> maybe we'll see. Um, but. The thing is, is that she she got by on her rapport that she had. You know, we're saying how she didn't have nearly as much chemistry with Moore as she had with Connery, and that's true. But I still think that she had good chemistry with Moore, and she had good chemistry with Lazenby, um, great chemistry with Connery, and especially the chemistry with Connery, it really shaped the entire role. You could say this stuff is scripted, but if you don't have two people who are believable pulling it off, it doesn't work. Money Penny would probably never have survived in a franchise if you didn't have Lois Maxwell playing it and if you didn't have somebody like Sean Connery for her to play off of. Uh, I think I agree with no. I think the only one that really has potential to overtake her would be Naomi Harris. But Naomi Harris is playing a different role, and uh, yeah. it's appropriate she's for those Eve. new movies. Yeah, she, well, not just the fact that she's Eve and has a bit of a backstory, but it's updated for the times. You know, the whole flirtation thing, it isn't just oh, let's give each other a couple of you know, pickup lines in the office. There's kind of a, a lot steamier uh, flirtation between the two of them, while at the same time kind of a rivalry. It's a different role. Um, 
nobody ever was able to imitate what Lois Maxwell did, which is why, even though Samantha Bond's okay, you know, she's still secondary to Lois Maxwell. So, uh, rest in peace. Um, you're not going to be including the kill count like Ben seems to be pitching here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't, I'm pretty much some, some wow <laughs> well, yeah when she said maybe Money Penny would, could get killed off I didn't think Bond was going to be the one to do <laughs> I said no I've been saying no for 20 years Money you Penny tease, bang <laughs> but yeah I, do, I, I don't have too much to add but I do like the idea of oh but we could do this Oh, how about we do this, though? Oh, why doesn't Money Pity do this? Get oh, out, no, Lois. Just... Take your thing. Yeah. <laughs> Go home, What if Lois. it turns out she's Goldfinger's sister? <laughs> <laughs> you were right <laughs> under my nose, Money Penny. That's Timothy Dalton. Um... Uh, the, there's definitely uh, a sketch there of Lois in the office on her <laughs> final days, just trying everything. Um, but, yeah, I, I just... Um, I just, yeah, she is Money Penny to me, and not just because of um, she's the original. And I almost wish every other Money Penny after this was called. I know Money Penny's iconic, and they do change actors with Bonds, but I almost wish they had different names. And yeah. it's like, well, Lois Maxwell was the Money Penny receptionist, and receptionist, well, our secretary. Well, what? Well, she's yeah, got lots of things. Um, she does everything for everyone, apparently. <laughs> Bonds personal letter writer. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I almost wish then Samantha Bomb was Miss like a different character, like Miss Dollar. Dime. Yeah, like Nickel Dime <laughs> or Nickel Bat. No. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> and then Naomi Harris was Miss Eve. Like I know maybe people wouldn't like that, but I kind of like the idea of M having a different assistant each time rather than just calling it Money Benny. But that's such a minor thing. But it works with it M. Really... They do that with M, don't they? Because, you know, it's it's kind of a, a implied that M is just the title, but it's a, it, you know... Well, it, it can... definitely was implied that when Judy Dench was shot and then Ray Fiennes came in, yeah. Yeah, but I... I, I <laughs> yes, but I, I agree with what you're saying. That's what I would add. Anyway. I agree with your agreement. All right. Rest in peace, uh, Lois as Money Penny, and also in general, too. We uh, miss you, Lois. Um, now, I'm going to group. I should have really grouped that scene with the horse racing scene because it makes more sense to group that than what I'm about to do. But I'll group the next two bits together, even though they're fairly biggish scenes, particularly the one that will follow this one. Um, we go to Ascot Racecourse. Um, more bloody horses. Um, and we, <laughs> yes, well, I've already mentioned it. I love the money penny. Come on, Flo, move your ass. Um, hilarious. Um, and we, we get. Maybe money penny can be a gambler. <laughs> yes, we could probably work that out, Lois. We meet Sir Godfrey, um, who, uh, is there to tell Bond a little bit more about, uh, Zorin. And we get to see Mayday for the first time. Um, and of course we see Pegasus winning the race. But then we see Pegasus is a little bit uh, grumpy afterwards, uh, which Q quips, she must have had a lot of vitamins. Uh, <laughs> and then um, we find out that uh, there is a private detective. Now, I'm going to try and... I can't pronounce his name. Aubergine? I, I don't know how we say his first name. Um, I just called him Eggplant. Uh, the, let's just call him Stereotypical French Guy. 
um, who Bond has to go and meet in, in Paris. Paris. We get the Eiffel Tower, and I fucking love this uh, sequence on the Eiffel Tower. I mean, it's only taken us 14 films to go to one of the most iconic areas in the world. Um, where they're at dinner, Bond's learning a little bit more um, about um, what could be there with Zorin and what he's doing with Pegasus, and we get this weird butterfly sequence one of which happens to kill Aubergine. <laughs> and we get this uh, amazing sequence then of uh, Bond chasing after the assassin. Spoiler alert, it's Mayday. Um, who then jumps off the Eiffel Tower with a clearly visible ramp at the top of the Eiffel Tower. Um, parachutes through Paris. Bond gets a taxi, gets in the most uh, weakest and um, <laughs> the car that just collapses after being tapped by another car and goes through this car chase and, um, yeah, basically through the streets of Paris. I, I love this car. I think this car chase gets a bit of shit. Um, but it's, again, it's fun. Like, just the fact that he's had to go from the Eiffel Tower to this French taxi driver who's drinking a glass of wine. Um, I mean, are they just going stereotypical French? Are oh, all French are drunks, including the taxi driver? Um, and then Bond just destroying this car and driving a two-wheeled car and destroying somebody's wedding. Um, I love it. I think it's great. Yeah, I love this car chase too. I don't know why it gets so much criticism. Um, I wouldn't really classify these as goofy things that happen in the middle of it. You know, maybe the wedding part's a little bit goofy, but this is more just, you know, quirky action bits. The thing with the the car getting cut in half and the roof coming off, uh, those are great. Uh, Before we did this, at the end of Never Say Never Again, I was saying that one of the things they lost in the Bond movies was the stunts. And this whole Moore era was about incredible stunts and Whereas we had like Spy Who Loved Me, Man with the Golden Gun, Moonraker, they would have their signature one stunt. Uh, what they really did for A View to a Kill that was good, and maybe it was to compensate for, you know, Old Man more, <laughs> but the movie's just full of one incredible stunt after another. And, you know, here we have the, uh, uh, the Eiffel Tower jump and the, the, the most impressive, which is the car jumping on top of the double decker bus yes. and then driving right off the front of it. One of the most incredible car stunts I've ever seen. So I love this whole sequence. Uh, the taxi driver is the funniest thing in there because he's he's drinking wine on the job. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's really the cab I want to get into. I also love that you know he mumbles a few things in French, but for the most part, the only English words he seems to know are "Oh my car, oh," which he repeats about sixteen times. "Oh my car, oh my car, oh my car." Uh, kind of got old after a while. Uh, the, the scene that happened earlier, the final Money Penny scene, I just want somebody to clarify this because I remember the line. I remember being so bizarre that I wrote it down. Who says to one of the horses, get a wiggle on? <laughs> I don't think I paid Am attention. Am I the only one who picked that I up? I, I think I didn't pay attention to that bit. <laughs> yeah, this was like the, the guts for garters line for me. Or I'm like, <laughs> is, is get a wiggle on like... Some type of British phrase oh, well, that I'm not familiar with. Go fast. Yeah, the phrase. Yeah, we use that in Australia. That's yeah. Go get a move. Get on. a move on. Yeah, hurry okay. up. Yeah, uh, get a wiggle on. Yep. Well, it sounds like what Bond should be saying before one of his many lays in this movie. Let's get a wiggle on. Um, <laughs> I don't know if hot I want to hear potato. Hot potato. <laughs> That's what they say before the wiggles come. Out. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess you Australians would know what the wiggles, right? Um, well, the, the fly and the wiggles. The, the wiggles are from Australia, Colin. Um, <laughs> That's my point. I'd, I'd hope oh, we yeah, know what my they point. are. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, 
these groups of scenes, <laughs> the, the horse stuff, I probably would like the, the horse racing stuff if there wasn't just so much horses later on. You know, Ben's the horsey guy here, but uh, <laughs> that scene's just sort of there for me. The the fly in the soup, the, oh, the butterfly line. hook on you know, aubergine or whatever, it's, uh, it's just okay. But all the stunts that come after, they're fantastic. And people really just need to stop looking at everything that's kind of unusual and quirky and say it's ridiculous and comical and just look at it and say no it's an incredible stun and it just brings something different to the sequence uh yeah the horsey bit uh not too much to add other than gambling money penny which was hilarious and uh like typical like retired person who just always at the casino or something um and then a few Q quips in there too. Um, this next sequence, it's my favourite part of the movie and it always has been <laughs> since I was a kid. I love everything that happens here. Oh, is that funny? <laughs> what the hell was that? No, I just don't know if anybody heard Jamie's cheese sneeze in the I background. I like, what the hell was it, the cat or something? Oh, was that a cheese sneeze? I thought someone was laughing. <laughs> I got completely distracted there. I just heard like, and something like that. I thought someone was giggling. This at is me. a common thing on, in case anyone wonders, it's a common thing on all of our podcasts. Pay no attention to the sneeze in the background. I'm just thinking, I'm glad we're not talking yeah. about Lois Maxwell's death again. And we're just going to go, kick, kick. <laughs> Yeah, cheese sneeze needs to be in there. But yeah, this was my favorite scene of the film. Everything that happens here from pretty much a killer butterfly, like, after that scene, everything. I love the chase up the Eiffel Tower. I don't know. It's not even that good really i just really always enjoyed it and then uh parachuting off is just awesome um and mayday is just really sets herself up as a great henchman henchwoman here the car stuff i'm with you we're three for three here i love that i always have ever since i was younger like it's awesome that he's driving around on like this is classic bond like this is what bond is in my eyes like when I was a kid, this is the stuff I lived for in James Bond. It's that kooky films where stunts um, stunts like this do happen. Like I don't get why this gets so much hate. I think it's fun. Um, again, I think we're being the old man moors here. We're just, oh, well, all the kids say, oh, I only like the Daniel Craig Boldens. But I just think people really do need to lighten up with the James. I'm not telling people what they shouldn't shouldn't like, but um, I just think I love the fun moments like this. And um, then jumping onto the boat is pretty cool too. Um, even though it's so obviously a dummy at one point when the when Bond falls into the <laughs> into the boat, uh, go back and watch it. It's just hilarious. But this is probably my favourite scene in the movie, and probably one of three action scenes in this film. But we'll get to that. There's, I love it. There's also the um, you were talking about the dummy freeze frame, all the like the long shots of the car breaking in half, and when the the roof gets ripped off of the obvious stunt double that looks about um, a third of the age of bloody Roger Moore. Um, yeah, it's 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 fascinating actually. Um, some of the behind the scenes things, particularly with the the car. That um, they they basically had the car held together with magnets so that when it got chopped in half they could drive it, and that the the half car was then had a tiny little fuel tank at the start, and it didn't have a muffler, so it was like incredibly loud apparently. And the Eiffel Tower one actually was interesting. I mean, yeah, you can actually 
clearly see the the platform that they jumped from it. But they had two people ready to do the jump, and apparently the first they got did the jump in one take. They like did it. They didn't need to do it again. So the second guy was so pissed off that he didn't get to jump off the Eiffel Tower. He did it anyway, <laughs> and without any permission, he got fired, and it nearly made them lose like rights to film in Paris. They got into a lot of trouble for it that they you know did it without permission. So. Um, thanks, random stuntman who nearly cancelled Paris filming. Um, well, not to mention, even before the incident happened with the the second stuntman, you know, who uh, just kind of wanted the glory of it, there was another incident where they almost couldn't do the stunt in the first place because two random people, just locals, just for the fun of it, wanted to do this stunt. And then because of that, you know, they had to all of a sudden go into, like, defensive mode. It's like, this had nothing to do with the movie. We don't know why this happened, so... <laughs> This whole stunt was just a disaster for the whole city of Paris that whole year. That was Kevin McClory. He was doing that, not yeah. us. Um, just don't look at us. Um, we then go to we uh, the one bit of information we found from Aubergine is uh, in regards to the horse sales, uh, where Bond turns into St. John Smythe, uh, a horse dealer, and uh, teams up with Sir Godfrey. Am I the only one who thought it was St. John Smythe? I, I get yeah, yeah. the way he says it. Yeah. But I had subtitles. But everyone says St. John Smythe, yeah. but then the subtitles say St. John Smythe. I, I wrote, like, I had to look it up too, because I was like, what the who? Where? What? What's his name? <laughs> St. John Smythe. Um, and we get, I mean, this, this whole scene kind of, there's a lot happening in the next, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour. Um, but I guess we can cover a fair bit of it, really. Um, this can I just point out this property is amazing. Like, I I don't know where this was filmed, but I want to live there. That is just like the biggest building I think I've ever seen. Like a mansion. It was just it's incredible looking. I love the kind of um, the, the been amazed by the concept of a mansion. I know, right? Like that's where rich people live. <laughs> it's like a house, but it's really big. <laughs> They have more than one bathroom. <laughs> hey, I have more than one. My bathroom. Friday night bath time will be ne- like never before. <laughs> I love the um the the acting here between Smythe and God. Like just the fact that he's being oh. a real bastard to him. Like, come on, get the bags, hurry up, go. <laughs> this is this is a guy who was knighted by the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and he gets into the room and they end up having the little tape recorder the conversation. <laughs> Can you just imagine Bond and Sir Godfrey going, okay, we just need to re- keep up our cover. Let's record uh, the following scenario. <laughs> You've got your script there, Sir Godfrey. I do, James. All right. <laughs> oh, hurry up. <laughs> no, do that again. Take one. <laughs> yes. Uh, and the snoring. Get a wiggle on, Godfrey. <laughs> yes. Snooping tape. Take three. <laughs> um, I should also mention, too, in the lead-up to that, we get Bond meeting... Uh, does she actually have a name? The short-haired woman who kind of is a bit of a henchwoman at some point? Jenny Flex. Jenny Flex, thank you. Oh, uh, no. Are you referring to Jenny or Paul, Paula? Oh, well, one of them. <laughs> the one that shows them around the property, yeah, right? Yeah, ben? yeah, yeah. Yeah, she says it's yeah, like the Jenny most Flex. famous... I'm Jenny Flex. Oh, well, I haven't written the name down here. Um... <laughs> Oh no, I well, have written it down here. Outside of her saying her no, name, I have what is her down. purpose? Oh. I'm sorry, I don't even read my notes. I'm Jenny Flex. Of course you are. Um, of course I've written that down. Um, <laughs> edit point. Not really. We left that in. Um, yeah, I love the fact that it's like I take it you spend a lot of time in the saddle. Yes, I love an early morning ride. <laughs> <laughs> Seems- this is like dying on the day stuff here. Yeah. But it's just, you know, this is Grandpa Bond flirting with, you know, he's like great-great-granddaughter. 
Um, and yeah, we, we kind of, I mean, again, I'm going to go over a fair bit here. Stop me if you want to cover something separately, because it sort of all ties in really with each other. Um, lots of little scenes. Yeah, lots of little scenes all together. And Bond, obviously, out and about, um, you know, gets to meet Zorin. Um, he's there talking up, uh, Pegasus' brother, and then we've got Sir Godfrey discovering that, um, Pegasus is gone, uh, Bond, um, witnesses, um, uh, Zoran meeting up with who obviously turns out to be Stacey Sutton, finds the check, uses his weird little gadget that can somehow see what checks were written on it, um, and meets, uh, Miss Sutton for the first time and gets taken away by Mayday. There's a lot happening here, folks, alright? Just, I'm gonna stop there because I feel like I'm going too much, and we can't cover it all here. But um, I, I will say the introduction, uh, Zoran and Bond. I do love their first interaction, and um, I cannot do a Christopher Walken impersonation. But I just love the bit there when he's like, "I'm happiest in the saddle." Like I can't do it. I can't do Christopher Walken. Maybe one of you two can, but it's it's perfect. Christopher Walken is just a bastard. He's just amazing, and. I just love him. I love this introduction of Zoran. I just cannot speak highly enough of him, and I'm going to keep doing it throughout this entire episode. I'm shutting up. Colin, speak. Um, okay, now you put me on the spot. Thanks. Um... Oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> to answer your question in the thing, um, yes, Bond and Mayday have sex. Yeah, I'm going to have nightmares just to mention that scene. Okay, let's start at the top before it all goes wrong here. Um the the stuff with Tibbet, that is the real highlight of the movie. Moore has nothing to play off of when it comes to walking. Like these two, they they barely interact, and when they do, it's not that interesting. Mayday doesn't really speak. There's no real um, chemistry there, and the parts that there are are kind of creepy. Sutton, why is she in this movie? And the scene between her and Bond is so forced with him picking her up. You know, when you watch these scenes with Bond doing the pickup lines on the Bond girls and everything, it's always fun. And the, the, the girls will usually just try to blow Bond off. And I don't mean that the way it sounds, but <laughs> they'll try to play disinterested. Let me rephrase. And it usually just works like it's, it's a fun rapport between the, the two of them, like banter. And here, because of how old he looks, it just feels like a 25-year-old girl who is like, yeah, in your dreams, Grandpa. Just, nothing works between these two. This entire movie should have been Roger Moore and Patrick McNee. I mean, I want to see the Bond Tibbet movie. That's amazing. It is so funny. These two guys are so good together. You get the impression that half of it's probably improv. Just treating him as a manservant is hilarious. I mean, I think they did this thing where they made, you know, Sir Godfrey. Like, he really is above Bond in any area of life. But Patrick McNee was probably above Roger Moore, at least in their home country, in England. They're at least equal level. But, like, this is a legend. And you have Bond treating him like a manservant. And these guys are having so much fun doing it. I love it. I love even that they use the old Kananga trick, like when we talk about when these movies kind of, they'll recall something. Bond and Tibbetts tape-recorded conversations, how Kananga made his mistake, or his escape in Live and Let Die. Um, everything with them just works so well. The rest of it, I could give or take it. Like, I honestly don't even care about Bond and Zorn together. Um, 
I think that you mentioned the only line in the movie where Walken even sounds like Christopher Walken, the I'm happiest in the saddle. Um, that's like the only time he even sounds like Christopher Walken in the whole movie. The rest of the time, he's just random guy with bleach blonde hair. Uh, yeah, if we're talking about the Mayday sex scene, let's get into it now. Um, <laughs> first of all, Bond and Tibbet's little mission is funny because it's this, just them having old man fights. This is where it's like, you know there's something wrong with this movie because all the henchmen that Bond faces are older than he is, which just makes it terribly awkward. While they're having their escape scene, Mayday and Zorn are having karate sex. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is this is something I'd have never seen ever again, people. <laughs> Zorn needs to go to the You Only Live Twice uh, yellow face station. To, like, that's Mayday's fetish. Or, karate oh, sex. Oh, yes, pretend yeah. you're Asian. We need the saxophone yeah, from uh, Never Say Never Again and um, drink. <laughs> just looking through the the, the thing. Yeah, Karate sex was big in the eighties. <laughs> this launched ter- it. This film was influential. Yeah, that's right. The influence of Butch Hill. Karate sex became a sport after this movie came out. Everybody, wax on, wax off. Oh. <laughs> it was very big in the San Francisco region, at least. Uh, <laughs> But what like as creepy as, as creepy as it is, it sells the character of Mayday, uh, <laughs> and it kind of sells the character of Zorin. I, I, I we'll t- probably talk more about Mayday later, so I'll reserve some of my opinions. But the fact that you have this really bizarre karate sex scene, and then it's followed by Bond in Mayday's room, the Bond Mayday sex scene is even more bizarre. It's just, I, I think, just more in bed with anybody at this point is bizarre, and I just ah. Uh, Mayday scared me as a kid, and Mayday in bed with Bond, like a sixteen-year-old watching this movie. I just, I, I, I was, I was terrified. At this point. I don't think I have anything else to say. I'm just I'm, terrible memories are flooding into my head now. <laughs> Colin's about to leave us. Um, <laughs> he's got to go. Uh, yeah, where to start? Um, Oh yeah, Mayday. Uh, I will. I'll, I'll leave my thoughts of Mayday and Zora, and maybe for a bit later. Uh, but yeah, she, I guess she is quite scary. Um, she scared me in Conan. Uh, I'm Barbarian. blanking on it. She, or yeah, but, yeah, but she was in the yeah Conan. The is that the one where they punch a camel? That. Yes, that is the horse punch. <laughs> is it Mayday who punches Grace punch- Knight? He punches it. Grace Jones. <laughs> yeah. Um, She's in Conan the Destroyer, which I think I saw before um, this film, and she's scared of a mouse in that film, so I wouldn't be too scared of her, Colin. Um, But, yeah, I guess she is quite scary. Um, The sex scene between her and Bond, like, the Beach Boys is on some of, like, people's worst lists of Bond moments and that, and so is this, and this one deserves to be on there. Like, he turned down BB. This, he's just... It's just, it is the most bizarre scene in Bond history because it's just like, Mayday, I've been waiting for you. And then there's a weird face from Christopher Walken like saying, oh, go in there or something. And then she just goes in, takes her clothes off, doesn't say anything. And it's just, and it makes it all the more funny that Grace Jones and Roger Moore hated each other in real life, which makes this scene all the more funny and all the more painful to watch. It's just... Really, it is the most whack job, craziest scene in Bond history, in my opinion. I just still do not understand what's going on here. Um, 
Jenny Flex, yeah, she's kind of just chew me, like just there pretty much just for the name and no other reason. Like they actually went to the effort of hiring an actress, casting an actress and paying her a fee um, or, yeah, paying her for the fact that they wanted to have the name Jenny Flex and that's pretty much it, really. Um, Not too much to add on the actual story scenes here this is where the film falls apart for me like there is definitely some interesting stuff but this horse stuff goes on for i think i looked and it was like 55 minutes when they finally get out of the horse stuff so there's definitely some fun stuff but it just goes on and 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 um as colin said like two old men fighting underground uh that was funny but i guess the only other thing to talk about here if we're talking about zorin and mayday later is um tippet which i am definitely on the bandwagon that tippet is a great uh ally like the 70s went away from bond allies but they kind of got back to it with the 80s with uh colombo and vj uh i wouldn't say tippet is my favorite ally probably not even top five but he does have such a great rapport with uh Roger Moore that rhymed and like he joins the uh, all the other Avengers actors to join um into Bond films and also narrated all the documentaries uh, on the DVDs Except as well for his own. <laughs> yeah which I watched the other day and I'm like why is this woman narrating them like I guess because he's in it that he couldn't do it or something which is bizarre but yeah I really do like Tibbet um he <laughs> uh will get to his death but like Classic Bond ally, dead, quarrel burning. Um, ah. But yeah, I, I just love their relationship and I love that he's a sir and like it's not just quarrel who's like just a random fisherman. This is like an official guy who Bond's treating like an idiot. Um, and then, yeah, Zoran and made, made a like weird karate sex thing. <laughs> I, I, I almost wrote, is Zoran about to rape Mayday? Because it... And I don't say that light, lightly. I actually thought that was about to happen. Um, but, yeah, I guess it does set up their characters, but it is just so weird. And then literally the next scene is the Bond bit uh, I just talked about. But, yeah, I don't like much of this first scene of the movie other than small funny moments in here. I think it just drags on for far too long. This is where I completely disagree with that. I, I did not get bored of this one bit. I mean, I know what you said about looking at the timestamp. I looked at it and I was like, wow, 55 minutes in, this is going by quite quickly. Like, I I enjoyed it. Like, yeah, there are bits like the whole, you know, more uh, Bond and Sutton scene when he's all like, you know, I'm Sinton Smythe or whatever his name is. I'm English. <laughs> like, just a throwback to fucking Diamonds Are Forever. I speak English. Which is your flaw? Uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking of that moment. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, the whole karate sex, the karate G-string sex scene, we didn't mention um, the, the G-string worn by Grace Oh, Jones. we forgot that important detail. <laughs> um, but, like, this is what part of what I love about um, Christopher Walken and Max Zorin, like, he's such a, like, uh, you know I love my sadistic evil pricks. He is just, like, 
he's a megalomaniac. Like, he's in this scene, and yeah, he gets very rapey. I'm not condoning that by any means, but it just, to me, it just adds to how much of an evil prick this guy is. And that he comes across as a real sophisticated person who's into, like, buying horses, and this is kind of, like, what he is on the outside, but, like, behind the scenes, like, he's willing to, like, karate sex rape someone, and then just within two minutes later, he's like, eh, go off and have sex with some random person. I'm, you know, still here being an evil bastard. Like... I don't know. He's just he's just so many layers to him that I just love so much about it. Um, and yeah, I, I I should have brought up the sex scene a little bit more, but um, yeah, I, I feel or or not. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you need to. That's enough detail. <laughs> the scene, the one bit though that kind of gets me. Maybe this is a fast forward to Skyfall, but the the shot of backward, like how muscular Grace uh, Jones is. The scene when she's on top of him, and because she's got the short hair, I'm like, if you ever want to know what James Bond having sex with a man looks like, this is the part where you look at. Like, I'm like, wow. Um, I just and Grace, Grace Jones, Jones will never appear on Double R Seven. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> Not to take away from Grace Jones. Grace Jones is amazing, but it's just that it's the thing you did just take away from. <laughs> didn't mean that you know what i mean don't take my comments out of context please um, <laughs> out of context you just called her a man <laughs> i said she looks masculine from behind when naked um, anyway um <laughs> we get to see the next morning <laughs> wow <laughs> Mr. Mayday uh, is asked. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not start this moustache thing again. <laughs> Mr. Day, um, he's <laughs> um, asked to bring Bond to the study um, to meet Zorin. Uh, how did you sleep? Oh, a little restless, but I got off eventually. Um, <laughs> Of that line. And, um, yeah, so they're talking a little bit more about um, St. John Smythe, what he wants in a horse. We didn't mention before he mentioned his dotty old auntie left him a horse or something like that. And uh, we've got this facial recognition software of um, of Zora. Not as good as the identigraph, um, <laughs> but connecting through. And I love how the text keeps coming up on the screen. James Bond, dangerous. And then it's got, like, Agent 007 flashing, license to kill, coming soon in 1989. Um, um, and to be killed. <laughs> yeah, and, and apparently this actually, this scene led to, I think, the CIA or somebody developing this software. Um, I was reading a, a thing there that basically, because they were like, oh, do we have that? No, let's develop it. So apparently this actually led to this legitimately being um, created. I keep saying A View to a Kill is one of the most influential <laughs> films ever. I know. We're on to something here. Karate sex, um, facial... <laughs> Um, recognition. Um, so yeah, then we get kind of, uh, Bond going outside, talking to Sir Godfrey, uh, the car wash going, saying like, you need to go get the car washed. And he slap his ass as well. Like at one point, I swear he slaps his ass with like a, a cane of written here, Bond. Sl- You're just obsessed with Wait. Bond being with a guy during this <laughs> Yeah, thing. what's going on here? Um, and then Bond, of course, gets into a horse race with Zorin, which turns out everybody's just coming to kill him and all these, like, weird jumps are popping up. Um, and then it all leads into, um, poor old Sir Godfrey getting killed, Bond in a, in a car getting pushed into the water and, um, ends up, of course, uh, with a scene then we find out with dear old Zorin is actually, uh, 
KGB agent, well, former KGB agent, and da-da-da, evil stuff. But, uh, yeah, a lot of stuff again to talk about there. I'm waffling on through lots of things. I'm still just thinking about karate G-string sex. Oh, oh, why do you keep talking? Uh (laughs) (laughs) Well, I usually do that on a podcast, but... uh... Uh, We picked the wrong host for this episode. (laughs) Anyways, so... One of the problems with the 80s movies is that we don't have a lot of memorable one-liners. Like, if you look at the 60s, 70s, I mean, anybody off the top of their head can just rifle off every one-liner that existed. There's one really good one here, which I always forget. So I don't know if it's just the thing about that they're not delivered in the right way, but I forget this too. But it is really good when Bond walks into Zoran's office. And, you know, Zoran, of course, knows that Bond just had man sex with Mayday, as Ben uh, said. (laughs) (laughs) But he asked him how his sleep was, and Ben, uh, ben says, "Sorry, Bond says." Wow, you've got me on the <laughs> mind, here, Colin. What do you and say? Ben says, "You look like a man." <laughs> Back on topic, uh, he says to Zorin, "A little restless, but I got off eventually." <laughs> That's a really good line. And I, I wish that there had been a different way of delivering it or something because I can't quite figure out why that line's not memorable. It's, it's like the, the, the slight stiffness coming on, but uh, you know, not quite as descriptive. I just, I, that, that's one line that I don't know why it never stands out for me, but it is really good. Probably the only really good one-liner in the movie. Yeah, the, the face recognition stuff. I was wondering whether we'd kind of be making fun of this because the technology does look really ridiculous now, but I wish that I could have seen this movie when it it was back when it first came out or even we look at the we're going to look at the um, the Pierce Brosnan movies and some of the the computer graphics in those will probably look cheesy to us now but at the time this may have been like the most advanced movie ever you know the way that we look at uh, these technologically advanced movies now when I think of Quantum of Solace and they have like kind of the hologram uh massive ipad things or whatever it is they're using i wonder if people at the time were like wow that's really good and it's interesting when you said about the cia because i would imagine that the reaction to this movie was probably wow that's really cool they've got computers and all that and it's cheesy to us now but i doubt it was at the time um i really want to talk about the the scene with zorin and the russians uh, I, I alluded to it earlier this is where the movie, I think, completely dropped the ball. You know, with Fear Eyes Only, I was saying that they, they messed up when they had uh, not used the, the Countess properly and that it really should have been more evolving around her. This is an opportunity that's really missed in this movie, uh, which is having the Russians. Th- this is why when we were doing Octopussy, we were saying that the end of Gogol should have been Octopussy because really what's the purpose for him being here but there was a good opportunity the the idea that this is a guy that you know was brought up he's kind of a freak as they say it which i have another issue with that and he's not really with the russians anymore but they've been working with him and then he sort of turns on them this would have been a perfect opportunity to develop a movie where it's like the russians think they have this guy in their back pocket and then he turns on them and now all of a sudden you have to have the russians and the british working together that's the way this movie should have gone. The Russian plot is dropped one or two scenes later, and it's barely even been mentioned. The other problem I have is the whole Zorin is a mutant freak or whatever. The idea that there was these experiments with steroids and that 
they keep mentioning him as being like having the super freak and he's supposed to be really strong i'm guessing that's what the karate sex scene was supposed to show but Zoran doesn't he's lift a, a finger in this movie. Guy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do a super freak. The kind you um, don't take Zorin, home to mother. Super freak. <laughs> and there goes Mayday. She's a man. A super freak. <laughs> karate sex. Karate sex. Let's karate have karate sex. sex. Yow. Hi. Hi. Oh. Karate sex. In a G Street. She's not a man. No. <laughs> now that's there that's goes the Goku. Problem. He's also a super freak. If Duran Duran had turned this down and Rick James had done it, that would have been the theme song to a beautiful. I'm Rick James, bitch. <laughs> but I, I can't be the only one who really thinks this. That that they don't really show Zoran the way that they set him up as a character. He's supposed to be this really strong, like roided out freak. And he doesn't lift a finger in this movie. I mean, Mayday does all the the physical stuff in this movie. Walken fires a gun later in the movie, and like I want to see him rip people's skulls off with his bare hands. I mean, why even give the setup of it? He's basically described like he's an X Men here, and we never see anything of it. So it really just kind of bothers me that this Russia thing is teased, and that this super freak, super freak thing is teased, and they never really go anywhere with it. I have to kind of disagree here. Um... I really like Zoran's backstory and one of the most backstories for any villain. And um, it's kind of like, yeah, they set him up that maybe he's a super freak, um, super freak, but really he's more of a failed experiment um, and that it was the side effects that turns him into a psychomaniac. And it's, it's really quite a dark story. It's gone are the days of Goldfinger. No, Mr. Bond. Like, if you really think about it, this is a dark backstory that Zoran only exists as a Nazi experiment and that he was born to be a soldier uh, for the Nazis or the KGB and, um, and that he's grown up to be this psychopath. Like, you totally get that he's crazy because... His entire existence boils down to Nazis wanna, wanting to create really super freak soldiers. Um, well, I mean, not to, inter- not to interrupt, but at the same time, like, I agree with you. It's a really good idea, but do they really go anywhere in the movie with it? They, they constantly referring to him as a, a psychopath without him really doing anything psychopathic. They're saying he's a super freak, but he doesn't well, really even get in a fight. I would say I mean, that doesn't his final massacre is one of the most psychotic of, yeah. things ever happened in Bond history. I would but, agree with yeah, that. Yeah, but that's like the last 20 minutes of the movie. I mean, it's just all this talk about stuff that never happens in the movie. I do agree partly on you. I think Zoran, I, I disagree. I do think he is a really great villain, but I do think they don't give him as much to do as he could have. Um... I feel like a lot of it is just him and Mayday bumbling around, like following Bond wherever he goes and like coming into the office and doing stuff that really the main villain shouldn't be doing. Like this is doing stuff that the henchman should be doing. So I do think he's underutilized, but I, in some ways I think that final scene or second last scene, whatever, kind of makes up for it. But yeah, I do kind of wish they delved into that a bit more and explored it a bit more because it is unique for bond and it is insanely dark of a backstory and they could have made this character like i like the over-the-top villains and more less serious villains uh 
but they really could have made one of the most darkest and unique villains here, and they partly do it, but I really enjoy that we have a lot of backstory here. Like, could you tell me the backstory of Christatos? Who? Oh, right, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. No, it's... Yeah, I kind of agree with both of you with a lot of the points you're saying. I mean, going on what I love about Zoran, though, like, kind of going back to how just sadistic and megalomaniac this guy is, I mean, I just think that... A lot of it is a balancing act that he plays. Like, we, we know he's an evil bastard, but, of course, he's kind of keeping up appearances a little bit with his, you know, rich guy um, persona as well. So, I don't think maybe he necessarily lets it um, overtake it a little bit. I think maybe the scene where he sort of massacres everybody at the end is really that point where finally he's, like, it's taken over him. This is it. This is, you know, I'm just going to needlessly murder these people for no reason. Um, which just, you know, as you said, Noah, it's one of the most really sort of dark things we ever see in Bond, and we'll get to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I kind of agree with Colin to the point that we don't see it to the extent that we could. Um, and I mean, the Russian scene, yeah, it's a little bit, it's just kind of like, well, we've got to explain that he's evil because he was a former KGB agent. Um, because, you know, everything in the 80s was evil connected to the Russians. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I still. I just still love him, and, like, the fact that he's going off and doing these things that henchmen, you know, usually do again, it's just kind of an extra element there. He's kind of like the villain that does everything, and, you know, like, you know, this is kind of like one of the few Bond films where it's like, you know, it's not just him sitting in a, uh, a volcano, you know, with random robot voice man going, 30 seconds and counting. Like, if they had that in this movie, that would be Zoran going, 30 seconds, and counting. Like, that sounded more like Bob Dylan, didn't it? <laughs> Fucking yeah, it's not Bob Dylan. <laughs> My name is Black Zoran. <laughs> Hello, matey. I can't do Christopher Walken. He's a super freak. <laughs> super freak. He's freakier than the, the super. Uh, he's freakier than the night, and the night is freaky. Classic um, gibberish Dylan line. Yeah, I just actually found the, the stat um, about the CIA. Uh, it says, according to former CIA agent Tony Mendez, who was a subject of the film Argo, um, that after what oh, after that. watching this film, his superior at the CIA asked him, did they have any facial recognition technology as depicted in A View to a Kill? When Mendez told him they did not, he ordered them to develop it. So, <laughs> And when he was done with that, he asked about karate sex. <laughs> but I have to wonder, I love the backstory of uh, Zoran. Do you think it would make a better plot if it was more personal rather than he wants to take over Silicon Valley? If perhaps, like, he's pissed off that they did this to him, so... Like a Trevelyan sort of to, thing, like going after Yeah, the he government. wants to get revenge yeah. on the people who... But the people who did this to him happen to also be in the same place as, like, good guys are or something. Like, you still need to make him a bad guy, but, like, in him trying to get his revenge is going to cause the death of millions of innocent people or something, but something to incorporate his backstory more into the plot because it, it, they do touch on it, but it is really, like, I do love it, but they could have played that into the entire film of what Zoran's plan is. Yeah, I'd agree with that completely. I think that would make it, like, make it a lot better because... Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you know, he wants to destroy Silicon Valley, monopolize the market. You know, it's Goldfinger, basically, as um, Collins mentioned. And it's kind of like, why is Zoran? Why is he obsessed with that? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Um, I, know, I know that he was injected with the steroids um, 
to become like that and that was in the microchips but really it's like why does he want to take over silicon valley like why him but i I guess it's kind of like you know if it was 20 years earlier what's he taking over you know silicon valley wasn't a thing back in 19 you know 65 well well, that's again (laughs) of keeping up with the times as we keep talking about that this film's very technological 80s kind of thing yeah what's your opinion on um what's his what's his name Oh, Hans Glaub. The, Glaub. the, the weird glasses guy. The Nazi, Nazi doctor, which he is the one I'm reading here on Wikipedia, conducted the experiments. Well, I guess they say that in the film, but um, on Zorin and all the other people. And I, I like the idea of that character being in there, but I feel like it's so underutilized and just... Seemed like they want it there just to blow up a Nazi at the well, end, and they could have done so much better with this character. Is this the first Bond film to really utilise a Nazi storyline? Like, I know we had the Nazi gold and Goldfinger, and we kind of had an East German thing in For Your Eyes Only, but we've never really had a, a Nazi... I mean, they're the epitome of evil, are they not? Like, it's all about the Russians, but, like, yeah, what about the Nazis? Cool. Like... Yeah. It would be. I yeah. I mean, I it's, it's, it's an interesting storyline, and it kind of... I, I, I think he plays it well. Um, you know, I mean, the whole time I'm thinking, what are those things called in the eyes that they have? Like those weird Monopoly... Monocle. Monocles, thank you. Um, Monopoly. <laughs> Monopoly man has Monopoly a... Monopoly glass. Monopoly man. Um, uh, what's the, the theme for Monopoly? Da, 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 the entertainer. Monopoly? A board game has a theme? There's um... Jeez, you've got a different Monopoly board than There I. was no, it was a thing like look it up it's it's renowned it's connected to monopoly um <laughs> we bring up monopoly now that was also made big from a view to a kill apparently um you yeah, know he's good like he, he's there to have that backstory as you said and just to kind of have that nazi connection and <laughs> just the monocle man like you know go ahead with that but um yeah i mean what, what do you what's your take on it i just feel the character was underutilized um and that they could have done more with it because I like the idea of... But I almost wish, as I keep saying, like, he's the one who did this to Zoran, so why not at the end... Zoran doesn't have to turn good, but why not Zoran, when he's turning into a psycho prick, also, like, throw this guy off the blimp or something, and this is for making me like I am or something. Mm. Like, that would have probably been better than let's have a Nazi get blown up, um... So something like that and just incorporate it more rather than just having this monocle man in the background all the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess it is one of the first Nazi storylines. But um, do you agree also that Gogol shouldn't be in this film? I, I don't think it works. I think Octopussy would have been a great final film for him. And then the KGB is so heavily featured next film, but Gogol doesn't appear then. So yeah, this, this, I think he shouldn't have been in this film. There's no purpose. Yeah, I, I agree. It's... I mean, it's kind of good kind of had that continuity with a sort of a character that kind of continues on film to film. But, yeah, you're right. Like, he should have been maybe in The Living Daylights more so to this because you could easily just throw away this scene with, you know, um, just a brief mention, like Mayday saying, like, oh, the KGP, keep KGP, KGB keep calling <laughs> Max. Um, and he's just like, well, I don't want to be William Shatner now I don't want to be in the KGB like I, I don't he's Dr. Seuss now <laughs> he's uh, William no Sam I am I don't want to be in the KGB he's no Dr. more Dr. Seuss Shatner um, <laughs> hasn't anyone learnt with me doing podcasts don't do impersonations 
<laughs> I do like that he's ex-KGB, though. That's a bit different than the same old, like, he's a KGB agent. But they've, combi- no. they've combined, like, the epitome of evil. Like, he's raised a Nazi, and he's in the KGB. Yeah, Nazi super soldier KGB. They just need to add, he's also part of Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and ISIS, as well as a Justin <laughs> Bieber fan, and he is, like, the <laughs> biggest prick in the world. Um... But yeah, no, I don't know. It's 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 interesting. Like it's it's. I like the connection point that they've got him in there as a random. Oh, he is General Google again. But you know, you could you could go away. You could go without him. Like bring him back for the living daylights, and you know, kill him off, and he just gives an award basically to Bond at the end. So, um, anyway, um. Okay, so moving on, uh, we we're in an airship. We're in a blimp. We don't know that yet until we see random guy exactly. get kicked out of it. But um, we get the the sort of the evil meeting. Um, they're all around a giant map. What's that map doing there? Uh, <laughs> which I'm so sad. With what is this a blimp? <laughs> and we kind of get the whole sort of scene, really explaining a little bit about what he's trying to do. He's trying to get people to pay him a lot of money to really be involved in the takeover of Silicon Valley. We get one man not wanting to be a part of it and gets kicked out of a blimp. And um, it all leads into our um, generic stereotypical trailer line to mention the movie as they're flying over San Francisco. Wow, what a view to a kill. I think it's worse than the living day. I, I remember when we were like one of the first episodes we did. I think I brought the question up, like, oh, you know, there's not many films where they don't mention the title. And I think I don't know if it was you, Noah, or Colin, where you turned around and you said, "Oh, I don't remember them saying a view to a kill in a view to a kill." Well, they did. Oh. <laughs> And then we eventually get Bond in San Francisco. We meet up with... I've called him Asian Lighter. But um, funnily enough, he actually was meant to be Felix Lighter. They originally wanted them to have Felix brought back into this film. But they thought, given in San Francisco and he's in Chinatown, they need to have sort of an Asian actor playing it. So they made it into that. Um, And we learn a little bit more about uh, sort of Zorin. And we get Bond turning into a journalist. Which, hey, there's hope for us all. We can all be James Bond, us journalists. Um, yeah, again, bit covered, a bit covered there. Um, but yeah, we, we get our first ever blimp in a James Bond movie. That's the most important part, maybe, of that. <sighs> um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think I mentioned it a couple times already that one of the flaws of this movie is that it's just Goldfinger redo. It's, it's the exact same plot. Uh, they had opportunities to make it different. I don't know why they felt the need to duplicate the exact same scene almost verbatim from what we had in Goldfinger. We have the the big model rising up out of the floor or out of the table this time. Uh, we have him with all these investors saying, this is my plan. I'm going to destroy Silicon Valley and you'll get tens of millions uh, or hundreds of millions here. Um, and then the one guy saying, I want no part of this. It's like, oh, all right, that's fine. You'll, you'll just excuse yourself for a second. And then they kill him. It's the exact same scene as Goldfinger. I, I like the the setting, you know, the the blimp boardroom, and it's okay. You know, the fact that they kill him by throwing him out of the blimp, that's all right. But why couldn't they have done something original? I mean, the the plot itself isn't a big deal that it's recycled because You Only Live Twice was recycled in The Spy Who Loved Me, in ways it was recycled in Moonraker. This is the exact same scene almost verbatim and it doesn't have 
the quirky characters that were set up. You don't even need a lot of screen time. I mean, Goldfinger's a shorter movie than this, and they did better job setting up the other investors in Goldfinger than they do here. I don't know who any of these people are. They don't really factor into the movie that much later on. Um, the only thing that's really good here is, again, like watching the guy fall out of the blimp and the fact that it's very delayed. You know, we, we see... Uh, the last shot, obviously there's some cutting here. They didn't just drop a man from a blimp and do it in one shot. But the very last scene again, or the last shot where he's dropping, it's got to be, you know, 100 feet or whatever into the water. That looks impressive still. But the rest of it's just the exact same thing as Goldfinger. I just It, it always bothered me, even at the first time I saw this movie, and I could forgive California girls. They should have done something different here. Uh, I don't really think I have much to add on chuck lee the asian lighter as you said he's okay in this movie he's not the worst ally bonds ever had but this was an opportunity to bring more tibbet into the movie keep him in here have uh that role extended a little bit more and i don't think anybody ever everybody remembers tibbet like you said no he's not the best ally bond ever had but i think he is probably the most fun we've had at this point and i don't think we needed another ally character in this um, I love the blimp slash zeppelin slash balloon thing. Like, it's so iconic to this film, and it's such a great twist on the villain uh, lair that the villain lair is portable, um, which is kind of cool. The oh, a view to a kill. Like, <laughs> give me a break. Um, that's worse than the living daylights. Um, I like the boardroom scene, but Colin hit the nail on the head. It is Goldfinger to a T. Um, even down to, I called him Mr. Solo Jr., like even down to having an Asian man get killed for not going along with the plan. Like It's it's just exactly. But I guess, yeah, I guess you're right that it doesn't matter too much about the plot. Like It's Goldfinger, but on a bigger scale, I guess, which is good. But then to do the scene exactly the way that it was done in Goldfinger is just crazy that they thought about that. But I do love the blimp stuff, though, um, and the further blimp stuff we'll get to. Um, Chuck Lee, uh, I I did not know that it was supposed to be Felix, but I was going to come on here and rant about how this should have been Felix. Like This is the first time we've been haven't had an extended scenes in America since... Live and Let Die, I believe, which was the last Felix film. And this is the perfect opportunity to screw we're in Chinatown or whatever. Like, they go to other places than just Chinatown. Um, Felix would have been perfect here. This is this is Felix. Just put the character in. Moore deserves to have at least two Felix films. Like, why did they have such a big break between them? I've never understood why they never thought to bring him back at all throughout the entire Roger Moore period. But this would be the perfect situation. It's not like Chuck Lee is bad, but you have a freaking CIA agent in this film. Just make it Felix. Like, that really pissed me off because I think he would fit this film. This film has that American kind of vibe to it that it needs a, a lighter in there. But I guess Chuck Lee's not too bad. But again, yeah, did we really need another... Um, another ally and then his death is just like we don't even see it if i'm correct it's just off screen oh yeah he's dead like what the hell well well at least more gets the lighter brosnan never got a lighter you got jack wade 
Um, we'll get so yeah anyway um so then we get obviously this uh whole connection going on now it leads um to an oil factory um where uh zoran is involved at and so they're they're um doing a bit of uh exploring there and um we get a whole situation going on with propellers jammed and Bond running out of breath again. He's losing a lot of breath. This movie should actually mention. He's old. What? He's old. Leave him alone. Well, he's old. He's like ninety. Yeah. Where was the promise you wouldn't be making fun of his age? All you've done this entire movie is do that. (laughs) Well, some promises aren't meant to be kept. Um, I should have just quickly gone back to the scene when he was in the car and he was doing the breath uh, with the tire. I was reading... I have never seen the Mythbusters James Bond episode, but I I believe in that episode they debunked that myth that that is possible that you can breathe using uh, air from a tire. Apparently you can't do it. So just to shit all over that scene, people, if you're wondering. Ben, this is a James Bond film with a Nazi super soldier in a blimp. <laughs> and, hey, and some Grace Jones. Bits of, you know, realism. Um, yeah, this whole situation, Bond, journalist Bond, expl- exploring the oil Stop. factory, getting chased afterwards. We get um, chopped up. Guys, that Lee getting chopped up? Who gets chopped up in that that tunnel? Is that random Russian... KGB person when we then soon get introduced into um, Paula Imanova or whatever her name is. Ivanova. What's her name? Paula Ivanova. Random Russian woman who Bond apparently knows. Another interesting fact, they uh, once again tried to bring back uh, Anya uh, for this one, but... Um, she would have been perfect so, in yeah. this room. Barbara Bach apparently declined, so they changed it to the other well-known <laughs> Russian KGB agent that Bond hooked up with, um, Polar. <laughs> but, you know, again, that, exactly, like, Felix would have been perfect. This would have been perfect to have Anya. They really oh, wanted to bring her back, didn't they? This film with Felix and Anya in a, and a few changes, this could be a top-ten film. Yeah. But um, so then Bond ends up getting to bed her after we find out that the bubbles were tickling her Tchaikovsky. Uh, <laughs> and then it whole leads out to oh. Bond getting a tape of recordings, which we saw um, we saw Paula with. And um, she swapped the tape, though, because she's in the car with Google listening to some Asian-style music, and Bond's there writing on a notepad. <laughs> we were robbed of not having it where it's the Tippet Bond tape that he swaps it with, so they put it in, and it's just like... <laughs> <laughs> or just the conversation. Oh, so what are we doing? Oh. Um, I... Yeah, that... How did they not think of that? That seems obvious. Special note, though, uh, we'll just keep this one separate. I do love the music. I actually love the Tchaikovsky, and we get the Swan Lake music going on there. I'm expecting Natalie Portman to jump out there as a swan um, and just dance around the room there at some point. But um, it's great music, the Black Swan music. Go see Black Swan. Great movie. Natalie Portman, I love you. Um, Yeah, um, this whole segment. I'll keep this one separate, I feel. Uh, I have mixed feelings on this because it is painfully obvious that it was probably a very last minute. I don't know if Barbara Bach was close to coming back, but the way that Pola Ivanova is introduced, it's like you're supposed to know who she is. Bond knows who she is, but as you even had the confusion earlier, Ben, she looks way too much like Jenny Flex for (laughs) it to be a nighttime scene, and you just recognize her and like, Pola Ivanova, and we're like, formerly known as Jenny Flex. Uh, (laughs) I don't really think that they set up her character well enough on the positive side and i don't know if i'm gonna get 
criticized again for cardboard characters, but I don't think she's a cardboard character. Pola is one of the more entertaining characters in this movie. Nobody really has a lot of life in this movie. I'll include Zorn in that. He has moments, but overall he's just kind of asleep for most of the movie. This is a fun character, and as you said, the the bubbles tickle my Tchaikovsky! (laughs) (laughs) That could be a classic line if it wasn't so unintentionally funny. The whole bubble bath thing, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really funny scene, and she's a funny actress the scene would have worked better if they had given her more development this is again another opportunity i said the russians should have factored in the story this is the last time the russians are even mentioned until the last scene of the movie uh or they might have been mentioned but the last time they really figure into the plot i just wanted to see more of this that the russians are maybe trying to counter this that they are on their own mission and then they work together Forget Stacy Sutton. Let's just have Bond and Pola Ivanova for the rest of the movie. And I think that uh, the plot's a little bit tighter and it's a lot more interesting. Uh, all the underwater stuff before that. I mean, I love underwater photography and everything, but this was probably the most boring action scene of the movie because there's not a lot of movement. It's too dark. You're not really even sure what's going on. You know, it's just seawater into pipelines. Oh, well, who cares? Uh, the movie's really slowing down at this point, I feel. Yeah, well, I agree on that scene. As I said, there's only like three or four action scenes in this entire film, and this is one of them. And you said it's slowing down. I feel like it was very slow to begin with in the horsey scenes. Um, the uh, polar... Imagine how great it would be if Anya just randomly popped up in a view to a kill. I don't think it works without Anya. It's just stalling for time. Like this scene, they could have cut it. It's almost worth it for Bubbles Tickle My Tchaikovsky, like, which is the funniest line of the film. It's really, really great. Um, one of the few comedy bits that work in this film, or one of the few comedy bits in this film. But uh, it's just... Other than that, it's, oh, yeah, Polar Ivanova. Good on ya. Um, and then Gogol. Good on ya. Good on ya. Good on ya. Oh, yeah, good on ya. Uh, <laughs> and then Gogol and Paula, like, both there in the car with the music, like, they missed opportunity with the tippet tape there. Um, and it's just like Gogol or Paula don't need to be in this film, and it's just... You could easily cut this and you're not missing much at all except for Tchaikovsky, um, which you could work in somewhere else. It's just, yeah, it's just like, what am I watching at this point? And and I agree with the stuff. It's just dark, all of the scenes. You don't really know what's happening with the oil station. They could have had some much better stuff here. But, yeah, I hate to say I'm not a Polar Ivanova fan. I just think it was wasted time. Well, for a 57-year-old, Bond certainly get laid a lot this movie. He's up to three already, and we've still got one more to go. So I think we've got a record here for an official Bond He knows film. it's his last hurrah he's going for. <laughs> he's it. invented Viagra in 1985, apparently. Um, so, yeah, we get to see Bond. He's um, being journalist. Bond still doing interviews, not introducing himself before interviews, but after interviews. I don't get that. He sees uh, dear old Strutton. Um, chases after her. We're not really just stalks Strutton? her. Strutton, 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 whatever. Sutton. What's a no? Who gives a shit? She's useless. Like she's the worst part of this <laughs> film. Like I can't even remember her name because who gives? Like what is the purpose of her in this movie? Her, her, well, let's talk about her. Then. Well, in all seriousness, her daddy's connected because she's got an oil rig and Zoran wants it. Like, 
outside of that, you could take her out of this film, surely, and it's not any different. It's, no, I completely yeah. agree. I mean, Tanya Roberts, the actress, is not very good. Uh, I'm not going to say she's awful because we've had Bond girls that are just so insignificant. Um, you know, uh, Holly Goodnight uh, or Holly Goodhead. Mary <laughs> <laughs> Goodnight's the greatest. Let's not group them. Mary Goodnight sister. <laughs> Holly Goodhead had a better developed character with a worse performance. Uh, if you're looking for the worst developed character, this is right up there with Kissy. She doesn't even matter to this movie. This movie could have just been Bond getting laid a bunch and not really having a main female ally. And I think, again, the movie works better because she really adds nothing. The whole idea about you know the, the pipeline purchase. Zoran's a guy who we see later on just shoot a bunch of people to death for no reason whatsoever. This is where I was saying, if he's a psychopath, there's no reason for him to be having to buy people off to the point where he's even trying to intimidate her and she's getting fired from her job. It's just, it doesn't even fit Zorn's character to have him treat her so courteously throughout this movie. And this is basically the setup for Christmas Jones later on. It's the exact same character uh, with just as poor development and just as bad of a performance. Uh, I, I think she definitely has to rank her as one of the worst Bond girls. I'm going to defend Stacey Sutton oh, slightly. Slightly. <laughs> Um, yeah, she doesn't have anything to do with the plot much, and I agree that the better Bond girls are the ones who do, but at the same time, Honey Ryder is one of the greats, and she has next to nothing to do with the plot. Um, so I still, yeah, she's in the bottom half of the Bond girls, she's in the bottom ten for sure, but like... I think she's better than Melina and Mustacha, and I think she's better than Octopussy. I think she's at least got some personality. She's so typical 80s, uh, like, female Hollywood character. But I don't, I don't know. I just like her. She doesn't really do much. She's more of a damsel in a distress than, like, a femme fatale or an equal or anything like that. But she's at least got a bit of personality. She's got no character development or not much to do with the plot but she's good looking i actually think she does have a bit of a rapport with bond i love the um the dinner scene that we'll get to and pretty much all of the house scene which we'll talk about in a minute um and then shocker when he doesn't get into bed with her but again we'll talk about that in a minute i don't know she's just got a bit of a spunky personality and She's fun. Like again, I'm not saying she's one of the greats because I don't agree with that. But I think she's better than, just more enjoyable than Mustacha and Octopussy and maybe Holly Goodhead. Although I think I liked Goodhead a bit more than you guys did. But I would almost argue more than Solitaire. But I won't go there. Um, She's less bland than Solitaire. I'll say that. But Solitaire had better character development. But I don't know. You don't always have to have a girl that's so into the plot as much although i prefer it it's just not always necessary and i still think she's fun but again bottom 10 easily but better than some of the other ones we've had in my eye disagree with you well, only could could you even really say she works even as a damsel in distress because let's look at the, the climax of the movie i mean we'll get to there later but she's just there and as soon as danger happens she's already escaped the only time she even plays into the whole damsel in distress thing is when she's scooped up by the Zeppelin at the end. Um, oh, and when she's almost caught on fire, which you were so hoping she would burn to death. <laughs> yeah, 
but even then, uh, the scene would play just as well if Bond had to escape himself. It's not like the movie stops if he doesn't rescue her. When she is sort of scooped up at the end and for the with the, the whole Zeppelin thing is a damsel in distress, you don't really care because there's really been no purpose for her to be in the movie, even at the climax. Yeah, all I'm saying is I, I agree with everything you just said. All I'm saying is I think she's a bit of a fun bit of a spunky character that has a bit of flair and a bit of personality she has nothing to do with she serves no purpose really except for going to the city hall and having a key or a pass other than that she serves no purpose i'm just saying she's a bit of a fun character i'm not really defending her too much i'm just trying to give her a little bit of props plenty o'toole had more screen presence and <laughs> betterness <laughs> yeah. in her film in her 30 seconds she was in then I'm glad you didn't say character development um yeah yeah tanya roberts apparently was a real pain to work with according to some of the stuff i was reading um the scene when uh they she emerges with the overalls on and Bond is like, oh, you found one that would fit or something like that. Apparently, they kept going over and over again, and Tanya wasn't happy and kept chucking hissy fits on set. And apparently, that line said by Moore is not even in the script. He just says it, said it because he was frustrated with her. And the look that she gives is based purely on like, hmm, and they just kept it in. So... Um, Which line was that? The the bit when they it's later on when they're at the mine area and they emerge from the shed and she's wearing like overalls and he says something like oh you could have found something that fits better or something like that. Um, so well, I mean that li- that line though that that comes down to the fact that when they got on set they didn't have anything to fit on her and she kind of suggested well I'll tie the belt here. So I don't think that that was if that was just an improv line of Moore's it was because it was playing on the real life behind the scenes issue they had with the wardrobe for her. Right. Okay. Okay. Um. Well, we've got this whole house scene. Um, Bond's obviously in the house and trying to catch her in the shower, but she comes out with a gun and thinks that he's there. And then, of course, we get the real goons rocking up. Um, and then Bond starts shooting him with um, rock salt. That's because that's just a thing <laughs> that um, you have in guns. Um, and, yeah, they, he chases them off. He still hasn't really killed anyone in a long time in this film, Bond. Um, what's the line he says? Like, all the king's horses and all the king's men and they still go away? Or I, don't, I, did, I wrote down half of that line there. Um, <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then she's like Lost t- interest in talking about dinner, and I love I love his line. Oh. What are you serving, whiskers? <laughs> <laughs> He's such an uh, asshole. I will say the fucking jump sta- jump scare of the cat when he's going up the the bloody stairs, and we. That um, scared the shit Classic out of John me. Bland. Scared the absolute shit out of me. I was like, "What the fuck?" And then this cat just ran down. Oh, Colin, you... that's what Colin did when uh, Mayday came. <laughs> yeah, Colin, you need to add that into the the quotes at the end, and somehow, yeah, tied in with Mayday, like having sex yeah. with Bond. <laughs> yeah. But I'll agree with you though that that was a big scare. My notes at that point just say "pussy's got rabies" <laughs> because it, it is a really good point. <laughs> that's that's a hidden scene from Goldfinger. Um, yeah. Davis, pussy galore. You must be dreaming. Pussy's got rabies. <laughs> um, well, we we should also point out. Uh, I don't know if you have more to add, but the, the cat's name is clearly identified on his bull as being pussy. Yeah. So I don't know yeah. if again this is another intentional connection of Goldfinger here. Well, apparently... Yeah, I I think it was some sort of deliberate nod there. Um, But yeah, this whole sequence, um, Bond ends up making dinner. He makes a quiche. (laughs) (laughs) Can 
Can I just say I love Quiche? Do you guys like Quiche? Quiche is good. Yeah, Quiche is pretty cool. Quiche is amazing. Yeah. Like I don't have it nearly as often as I should. Isn't there like a book or some famous thing saying that men, real men don't eat Quiche or something like that? But fuck Screw it. I, I don't quiche give, is awesome. I don't give a shit. Quiche is awesome. Like, who doesn't like Quiche? I'll be a fake man then. I don't want to give up Quiche. <laughs> like, quiche is... Quiche is the bomb diggity. Like, it's amazing. Um, Screw that book. Anyway, and then Noah, uh, Noah, I was about to say Noah. What? Bond's talking about baboons coming back. Um, so then she goes to sleep. Baboons? I've written here, Grandpa tucking her in. Because um, that's what it looks like. <laughs> night, night, granddaughter, sweetheart. Off to bed. I'm going to have some warm milk and go to bed. Um, Sit on my rocking chair. <laughs> then we wake up. It's morning. That's usually what happens when you wake up, um, unless you're, you know, old and sleeping. But um, there's an earth tremor. This kind of goes um, into the connection that, oh, hang on a minute. This is right near where Zoran's stuff is. That must mean something. Um, so they have to go to City Hall, where she still has a security pass after being fired. We should have mentioned that. Um, and oh, this is where I've written here, Asian lighter dead. Um, all right, so that's when he died. <laughs> See um, But yeah, I'll stop just short of City Hall because that obviously leads into something more. But um, <laughs> nothing just sums this all up with James Bond makes a quiche. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I don't know what your guys' fascination I mean, Keisha's okay. I don't know what your fascination is. I think we talk more about Keisha in this than we have Mayday. Uh, well, it's, it's a rare dish for me. I just take I was, it was the first, saying that I'm not a real man because I enjoy a quiche It was the first ever meal I cooked for my family when I was like, I don't know, 10 or something. I found a recipe for quiche and I said, Mum, can and I make it? they've never eaten quiche since. <laughs> <laughs> That is true. Uh, we learned so much about Ben's backstory in these podcasts. We know that he like the quiche in the bathtub. Of ben Randall. was a Nazi experiment that definitely went wrong. Uh, I, I already have a title for our eighties, our eighties retrospective episode. It's going to be "Let's Talk About the Quiche Again." <laughs> what is it? The Mean Girls, where they're saying, "Stop trying to make quiche happen." Like, hey, it started with the Bond films. <laughs> So so far, we know that outside of James Bond, Ben's entire DVD collection includes Black Swan and Mean Girls. Uh, where's our credibility going? And Master Show. I love how there was an awkward silence when I mentioned Mean Girls. Like, everybody got worried for the credibility of 007. Oh, fuck. He brought up Mean Girls. I think we got worried about the credibility for 007 in episode one when you brought up Madonna and Die Another Day. <laughs> Speaking of which, we haven't heard that yet. Let's play that right now! (laughs) Moving on. Yeah, let's move on. Okay. Um, Rock Salt Gun. Uh, I guess they're a family of geologists. They have to have a Rock Salt Gun. I don't know why. Uh, This is another one of the scenes where... I don't know if it was intentional, if it was just a way to play off of Moore's age. (sighs) Bond is only fighting old men. Why are all these henchmen 85? I don't get it. Give him somebody... Like, you have the stuntmen. Give him somebody young to fight. The, the The shooting scene is good because you do really get surprised at this point. Like, Bond has... Like you said, he's killed nobody, really, since the helicopter. And now, all of a sudden, he's shooting these guys, and you're assuming that they're dead. So it caught me off guard even... I, I forgot that it's rock salt, and it was only, like, after the second or third shot. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's the rock salt gun. The scene's okay. It's, it's again, not, like, the greatest action scene you've ever seen. The good action stuff's still to come, but it's just sort of a random fight. Um, 
I do always say that I like the fight scenes that just have a quirk to it. So the fact that it's all revolving around this vase that they don't want to break and a rock salt gun, it makes it a little bit more memorable than it would be because the fight itself and the action is not really there. Um, seeing Bond cook a quiche, I kind of like that. I'm, I don't know what this book you're talking about is that we're going to be doing a <laughs> podcast on in the future along with the Birds of the I West Indies. <laughs> Zero stars. Bond is like a master chef is kind of fun. Uh, yeah, Grandpa tucking her in, that's funny. Uh, the, the, the computer, very early internet, which I'm guessing that's why she wanted him to turn the phone lines back on outside of her window because she needed this, uh, this whatever you call those, uh, the Richter scale measure on her uh, pre-1990s internet connection. <laughs> The the real problem here is the kill of Asian lighter, as you call him, Ben. Uh, <laughs> it does happen off screen, and it's just really awkward. You know he's dead, but then you see the car drive away. I wanted some type of scene where it's acknowledged because this character's not acknowledged again. So you're wondering why is Bond not even caring about this guy? Uh, I don't know. The movie just. I do like, as I said at the beginning, that this movie has a little bit of class back to it again. And the fact that you have this elegant house, uh, you have this fight scene with this, you know, vase. They're very protective of these uh, <laughs> artifacts or uh, these. Ah, oh, screw it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a gross. Uh, he's cooking a quiche. Little things like that are things you would see in the <laughs> 60s, definitely not in the 70s. But overall, again, the movie's still really slow. But thankfully, it's about to pick up right after this. In the 70s, the quiche would have been in the vase. <laughs> yeah, Guy Hamilton's magical acid trip. Just quiche sales rose after this film. <laughs> Very influential film. Snowboard- that book was written after this movie came. Snowboarding out. quiche makers were like getting a lot of sex in the 1980s. And karate. Don't forget the karate is. Um, yeah, I like all the house stuff. I Again, it goes on for a bit too long, but you get some nice moments between... Stacy and Bond, uh, and yeah, the eloquent big house Ben. Oh, it's a house, but it's bigger. Um, yeah, the fight is kind of it's okay. I like the vase bit; that's funny. Um, but why couldn't it have just been a real shotgun? That would have been cool. Have a typical Bond fight. Why do we have? To, oh, he's an old man. He can't kill people. Like, it has to be rock salt. And you think this is James Bond when he figured it out he should be going after them and. Like killing them all, or at least tying them up, or something. Like, he just lets them go. Yeah, Daniel Craig yeah, would chase after the car, and shove the shove the gun up his nose. All these, he's always surprised when these henchmen keep coming after him later in the movie. Like, maybe if you'd killed them, it wouldn't be the exact same <laughs> senior citizens chasing you for two and a half hours, just letting them go. And also, who are these goons? Um, They're baboons. Did we establish that? Yeah. Um, they were probably shot at the end by Zoran anyway, but yeah, I think this movie is summed up by the fact that <laughs> James Bond makes a quiche. <laughs> uh, just let that settle in. It's not Moonraker. <laughs> makes a quiche, um, which again I enjoy quiche. I don't know what this book is, but I'm going to have to track this I really down. Really want a quiche shoot, now. Shoot the author with rocks. Can we just stop recording and go Ooh, get a quiche? Midnight quiche. <laughs> Yeah, I really want we get a quiche one. at 11.34pm in Tasmania? I'm willing to drive to Snug right now if it means we can get a quiche. There's no quiche here. 
I wish there was. I don't think I've had quiche in a few I'll years. Get some eggs. I would... I get some bacon, some pastry. We've got oh, a what about the mini quiche? I like oh, mini quiches. Oh, they're so good. You put them. Oh, yum. Colin, what is sure... wrong with you two? This is James Bond. <laughs> I'm sure bakers probably are starting around here around this time Colin, for the morning, Colin. so we could break in and hold them up. Make us a quiche. Eat quiche, Colin. Get Jamie. Like, take you out for dinner. Go get a quiche. Sneak. There's cheese in quiche. Like, <laughs> yeah, you're in a position right now where you could get a quiche. Where we're kind of shit out of luck about quiche unless we make it ourselves. Um, yeah, how big is quiche in Canada? Quiche sales, Canada, but um, Canada quiche. Um, <laughs> the reality show. Oh yeah, coming to CBC. Um, yeah, I've just <laughs> but, I've found the. No, oh, sorry, had you finished? I thought you had. Oh, I, I enjoyed this scene. I just think it goes on a bit. But James Bond makes a quiche for a girl. Apologies, I just got overtaken by quiche obsession. Um, yeah, apparently it is a reference to a 1980s humorous book entitled Real Men Don't Eat Quiche, written by Bruce Furstein, who then later went on to write the screenplay for Goldeneye. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's a weird connection. <laughs> I couldn't have been dying another day so we could bag him out more. <laughs> You know, it's actually funny. Uh, we're talking a lot about last in this film, you know, last Roger Moore, last Lois Maxwell, uh, last time we see a quiche ever made. But um, <laughs> this also is, we should pay attention while we're talking about stunts and dying and, you know, all this sort of stuff. Bob Simmons, this is his last ever James Bond film he'd work on. Died in 1988. So rest in peace, Bob. Go hang out with Lois in heaven. Oh. <laughs> that wasn't meant to be a joke. Like, they're probably well, friends. Frank Simmons and Lois Maxwell are sharing a quiche in heaven they right probably now. Are. There's a nice image. Oh, well, poor Bernard Lee didn't get an invite. Well, maybe he went to hell. Like, I don't know. And then, and the, oh, Ben. <laughs> he might have, like. He's got to stop talking in this episode. Uh, he might have like, been into voodoo or something. I don't know. I want to um, get see the behind the scenes of Lois Maxwell. Oh, maybe Money Penny could make a quiche. Um,. <laughs> Oh, no, that's already in the script, Lois. We don't need money, Penny, to make a key. Just leave. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, we're off to City Hall. <laughs> we're there, and we sort of discover basically the, the real evil plot here somehow that you can discover that he's going to be putting up, you know, explosions to make a double earthquake. Um, I didn't even know such things existed, a double earthquake. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, um, Zoran is going to be putting explosives um, on a lake near the faults, uh, San Andreas. uh, I didn't see The Rock, actually, in this movie. But um, anyway, and it's going to cause a flood of Silicon Valley. um, And then Zoran takes over. It's kind of all discovered. And then Zoran shows up, funnily enough. Here he is. Hello. Max is back. Um, and then he puts them in an elevator, um, puts a couple of Molotov cocktails on top of it and burns the shit out of the building, does a runner, um, Bond escapes, uh, well, so does, uh, Stacey, sadly, um, and yeah, they, they get outside, they get sort of, um, you know, the only two people to emerge from the building, the survivors, oh, they must be the people who set building to the fire, um, but then Bond basically squirts a police officer Gets into a fire engine. Whoa. Uh, get your mind out of the gutter. And we have a car chase involving a fire engine and police cars. Um, in, also involved in this scene is Bond dangling off a ladder, um, taking off people's hats and uh, destroying a caravan to see two old people having sex. 
Um, that was apparently uh, Bond's like younger, you know, brother, and yet they still look older than him. Um, and then we get the breeze, breeze bridge being raised, uh, jump over the top with that, and cop cars falling backwards. I love this car chase. Again, I think this is another one of these ones that gets ripped shit into, but I think it's fun. Um, you know, you said there's not much action in this film. I, I'm still enjoying this point. I'm not thinking it's dragging on, and the whole bit of dangling off a ladder is just hilarious, and going through San Francisco, and we kind of once again get our goofy American cops um, you know, we didn't have any Larry, Larry. Yeah, I think Larry got him. Or <laughs> where's JW? Toby, Toby. Um, you know, we didn't get any of that, but we still had dumbass San Francisco cop. Uh, but I love this scene. I I enjoyed it, and interestingly enough, the the whole building burning they um they did that I believe, but with a replica. They didn't actually really burn down San Francisco City Hall. <laughs> did they do a double earthquake? I think so. They um. <laughs> Just, just did it, and you know, yeah, that's how it works. Uh, yeah, I'm right back in the movie at this point. Even though with the fire scene, I mean, you, you have flames everywhere, but there's really not a lot going on. It's just Bond climbing very slowly out of an elevator. Nobody's burning Bond climbing for you, very Colin. slowly. Nobody's getting burned. It would have been so much better if Sutton was burning alive or anybody. <laughs> uh, I would have settled for even a quiche just burning on the top of the building. <laughs> oh, no, I burnt the quiche. <laughs> no, don't say that. That gets me scared. <laughs> but, I love the yeah, burning quiche. <laughs> I, I do really like the, the City Hall on Fire stuff. Um, it's really a secondary to the chase. So, again, I, I'm completely with you. This chase is really fun. It's not the greatest chase scene you've ever seen, but... There are a lot of great, especially the bridge stuff. When the police cars are, you know, tumbling backwards off the bridge as it's elevated, that's that's great. Again, good stunt work there. Uh, I actually wrote in my notes, JW California, because it's the exact same role here. Uh, I like the line that he gives right at the end where he goes, where Bond's like, uh, I'm a secret agent. So he's like, yeah, and I'm Dick Tracy. Uh, not Arnold Palmer, apparently, but yeah. he's still out of another... But again, it's picture. like people know who James Bond is. Yeah. <laughs> but the funniest thing to me in this entire sequence is just Roger Moore is so good. He doesn't get nearly enough credit as an actor. People think because you're a comedian, you know, you're not really giving a good performance. It, it takes a lot to be funny, and even when he's not funny, we talk in the spy love me about how good his dramatic performance is. I don't know why when they're like, "Oh, you know, there, there's dead people in that building," and then like, "We found this gun. Is this yours?" And Bond's like, "Yes, thanks." Like he thinks he could just take it right back. Just the way he delivers that line is Bond's like, "Yeah, thank you." Like what? Like, just there's dead people in the building, and Bond doesn't think that they're gonna find the suspicious. Oh, this is your gun, right? Yeah. Just say no. That's uh, Stacy's gun. Uh, see ya you know it would have been a little bit better but the whole the whole interplay back and forth where it's like uh no this is james stock from the london financial times like well actually i'm a secret british secret <laughs> service agent he's just giving everything up it's just it's such a bizarre scene yeah uh, i'm a secret agent yeah, a, a secret agent what are you some kind of doomsday machine yeah, boy secret agent. english secret agent from england i'm english <laughs> this you know the more i think about it this really was john glenn i mean it's the most different of all of john glenn's bond movies he in every way even if it wasn't just you know imitating goldfinger in every way he was kind of making a guy hamilton movie we have the guy hamilton 
police chief, you know, the attaboy Larry or the JW in here, uh, the chase scene that's just has like these ridiculous stunts that are you know, uh, impressive, but maybe a little bit goofy. Uh, all the bizarre things in the plot, the quiche, everything. I mean, this was John Glenn making a Guy Hamilton movie. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it just sort of occurred to me how many similarities there are to just Guy Hamilton's style, even in this chase scene. But the chase itself is really good. Uh, I don't think it's as good as the stuff in Paris, uh, but it's still fun. And when I look back on this movie, you know, even if it's been years since I've seen it, I always remember this sequence and the mind stuff at the end is like the highlights of the movie. Uh, yeah, I would agree on that. When I think back to Review Door Kill, I always think of the Paris stuff and this stuff as some of the best bits and most memorable ever since I was a kid. Um, I like the burning building stuff, but it goes on and on and on again, and it could have played the tension a bit better. Like, um, But I still like it. And then I, I have to like the secret agent stuff. I just find it good comic timing among like stacy and that like are you like, yeah um maybe. well I'm, I'm dick tracy yeah maybe <laughs> it's just kind of funny even though it's so bizarre that he would be saying i'm a secret agent but i guess they would get arrested otherwise um and then another case of why didn't they just kill bond like uh zoran kills mr howell i think that's his name mr howell mm-hmm. why didn't he just shoot bond and uh stacy and then let the f- building burn like it's just another case of that but that happens in even the best of bonds so you can't complain about that too much um the chase i love it again they're mixing these chases up this is a real 80s thing that um the 60s and 70s were quite similar a lot of the time but this time we've got like we had a mini down a down a big hill and then this we had the rickshaw last week and now we've got a fire engine um it is a bit dumb with Bond dangling on the on the uh, ladder, but for the most part, I really enjoy this. Maybe not Diamonds Are Forever level for a busy city street chase, but it's still really cool. Um, and I love the bridge stuff. I love the cop cars driving up. This is classic, just not goofy Bond, but it's just classic Bond to me, stuff like this, like, a little humorous kind of scenes in these action bits. And it just seems like such an eighties thing. I don't know why, but, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I love it when they go up the thing and then the fire engine going over, but some of the cops nearly going off the edge of the uh, bridge is pretty cool. Um, You're going to pay for that car out of your salary, hundred dollars coming yeah, out. Every- yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that bit, but yeah, overall, it's not one of Bond's all-time greatest chases, but for me, it's a highlight of the film. I enjoy it. I'd just like to hear quickly your each of your thoughts before we move on, because we've only really got a couple of bits to talk about. Um, I read a lot of criticism online about um, the locations in this film not being overly glamorous, and particularly San Francisco, saying, like, oh, you know, it's San Francisco. But, like, I, for one, am a fan of Bond in the city. Um, I don't know how you are. I mean, obviously, it's not, you know, as glamorous as some other places, but I'm, I'm just a big city person. I love cities. And San Francisco is a beautiful city. Like, it's amazing, you know, on the bay with the Golden Gate Bridge that obviously we'll get to in, at the end of it. But, I mean, do you two kind of like Bond in the city as opposed to, you know, is it a, a nice little break to get away from these glamorous locations to have a city Bond? Um I don't really mind Bond in the city. I think most of the criticisms are fair only in that when I mean, we had the same criticism when they were in Goldfinger, 
so many movies film in the United States and I guess American movies are so known worldwide that these locations aren't really new. And I think that's the real problem. If this were a city that had never been filmed before, it might have been more interesting for me. But I think if you're looking at the great locations in this movie, you remember the snow sequence. You remember uh, Zorin's castle or whatever his, his uh, stable. Um, and you probably remember the mine stuff. The Golden Gate Bridge is really the only thing that stands out. Other than that, maybe it's the fact this is just a nighttime scene. It could have been any city in the world. And I think also it does have a lot to do with the fact that when you're filming the United States, unless it's Las Vegas, it's not something that you haven't seen before. So uh, I I think the, the criticism is fair only because so many movies have shown the exact same cities over and over again. I think that's a good point. This film just looks like typical 80s Hollywood. Like So many films are like this during the 80s. Um, which can be a good thing, but yeah, it doesn't really stand out. But it doesn't really bother me that much. It's not Kentucky. <laughs> I would say these locations are better than, um, like, for your eyes only. But again, yeah, it's not one of the most memorable. And it's another maybe X across this film. But yeah, it doesn't bother me. I've never, like, complained about it as much as I didn't know that that was a thing that people didn't like the locations of this film. But I guess besides the bridge and the tower, it's not overly uh fantastic but it's uh, it's fine i think it's part of the reason why i like this film so much is it uses kind of two very iconic structures and i'm you know a big fan of sort of skyscrapers and iconic structures like that so obviously we get the eiffel tower and the golden gate bridge in one movie so um and they make perfect use of both of them so man yeah, it's just me maybe wait till they go to canada and we get the giant nickel <laughs> <laughs> you might yeah. not get that reference <laughs> well they could use the cn tower or niagara falls um Anyway, or my house. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's definitely on the list. A former hospital um, <laughs> turned into apartment complex. Um, Winnipeg, the scene of Bond twenty-five. Um, now, yeah, so we then we get uh, Bond and Stacy driving a long way away in this fire engine. They're off to see the wizard. Apparently, no, it's Zorin um, and his mine. Um, I love Bond doing an American accent here when he's trying to get through. Um, and yeah, we kind of get this big, huge battle. This is where the bombs are starting to go off. The flooding's happening. Zoran's starting to become a real evil prick because he's trying to get this whole process and the flooding started. Um, this is where he obviously betrays, uh, Mayday. Um, people are dying. He turns into a masochist and just absolutely guns the shit out of people. Um, and I, this is, again, Zoran Love. He's doing this, he's gunning him down, and he's laughing. Like, this is just evil. Like, this is Xenia on a top. You know, just just murdering people and just laughing. He's not moaning at the end of it. Um, Mayday on a top. (laughs) Mayday on a top. But, um, yeah, we get this whole sequence, lots happening. Um, At the end of the day, it all turns into uh, Zoran about to bugger off on his airship which blows up in, what, like, 30 seconds? I read apparently in real life they take 24 hours to blow up. Um, So a bit of fast uh, speed up of the camera there. And in all of this, Mayday dies um, because she's getting the other bomb, which is going to cause the flooding off, but she's on a little, I don't know what you call that, little rail cart thing um, that goes outside. And Bond, get off, Mayday, get off, jump. And Soren's like, it's Mayday. Like, why doesn't she jump off? Like, there's no reason for her to kill herself. 
Um, but we've got to eulogise May Day here, I guess. Um, just I'll just quickly say I love May Day. Um, I think she's fantastic. I said at the top, she's one of my favourite henchmen. I think she's one of the best henchmen. Um, Grace Jones, not the best actor, but, you know, she pulls off a lot of the physical stuff. Well, maybe there's not as much physical stuff they used her for. Like, there's probably a lot more sequences they could have used her in that element. But um, she's fantastic. She's memorable. Like, you just... She's one of these ones that if you list the top ten henchmen, you know, you're always, I feel, going to put her up there in the top ten. I'm not saying she's iconic as a Jaws or a Hans, but she's, you know, she's... <laughs> She's still extremely, you know, remembered, remembered in the Bond franchise, and I personally am a huge fan of her, so I'm sad she killed herself for no reason. Um, yeah, when they first come up to the mine, I do like Bond's accent. There's a fire on your rear end. Uh, <laughs> not the best accent Moore's ever done, but uh, we talked already about the whole thing with uh, Stacy's wardrobe, but... Um, just again to briefly mention it it was apparently an actual wardrobe mistake where they're like well this doesn't really fit her and then uh, tanya roberts said well i'll tie this around my waist and kind of make it 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 makes it a little bit more memorable but as i said earlier she doesn't belong in this climax she doesn't do anything when all the action starts happening she's the first to escape and she's just gone for it so i would have rather her not been in there in the first place there's one funny guy um in here and Ben will like this because it kind of justifies his uh, made a she-male comment earlier um, where he's uh, when Zoran does start killing everybody he's like, but made it! And my man! Uh, <laughs> when he says that line my wife honestly turned to me and she goes, did, did he just say Mayday is a man? <laughs> she was honest. She had me rewinded a couple times. She's convinced every time she heard Mayday is a man. So <laughs> you're not the only one. Ben. I have issues with the Zoran killing spree here. I do think it is probably the only memorable thing that his character really gets to do in this movie. I, I'm not you know, dumping all over Christopher Walken here because Christopher Walken's a great actor. I stand by what I said earlier that this is probably the least interesting Christopher Walken performance I've ever seen because he's just so subtle in it and really not doing a lot. He doesn't have a lot of personality. He has charisma more than we've seen in a while. And I think he should be get credit for that. He's probably the most memorable of the 80s villains. Uh, not as good as Kamal Khan, but that's kind of more half villain or whatever you call it. A lot of people do criticize this scene with the killing spree because of the violence level. And that's not the problem I have with it. I'll go back to what I said originally that Zorin doesn't really ever show that psychopath side. They keep referring to him as a psychopath when he hasn't done anything psychopathic. The problem with this is that it doesn't really make sense for him to kill them. And you can kind of twist it around and say, oh, well, you know, it, it shows how sinister he is that he still wants to kill these people up close. He wants to do it with his own hand, his own trigger. These people are drowning anyways. There's no reason to kill them. Again, doesn't I'm that make this, it I'm, even more sinister? Well, there's a much better way to do it, I think, because it is kind of confusing. If you're not really paying close enough attention to get the two or three mentions of Zoran's a psychopath, Zoran's a psychopath, which, you know, is based up on nothing we've seen in the movie so far. My wife's watching this with me, and she's just so hung up the whole time on why is he even killing these people? It doesn't even make sense. And, and it does get, if you really think about it, it does get distracting because they're drowning anyways. And you could make the argument it makes them more sinister, but I would much rather have seen 
him just blow this thing and you have the line saying, Oh, made it and my man. He's like, Screw you, made it and your man, you know? And then you have him leave and all the you have a few people who are able to escape. Now you're on the surface, he's getting to the blimp, and he just unloads this machine gun on everybody who's made it to the surface. I think that's a better way of playing it. Because in a way it doesn't make sense why he's killing them, and it lessens the impact because these people are dead anyways i just don't think that the scene really sells him the way that the movie intended as a psychopath uh the thing with the explosion i i like that mayday turns in the end so we'll talk a little bit about mayday now mayday's turn really helps his character because she's kind of just again Did you say helps his character <laughs> Did I? I don't know. I... <laughs> oh, oh, we can't Rewind. say that. That's inappropriate. I, don't... <laughs> I, I, I want. I want to listen to this episode again and see if I did because I have no idea. Uh, helps his character. Helps his character. Helps his character. Helps his character. <laughs> it helps her character um, because she really is just sort of odd job. Another gold figure thing. It's just odd job again. But Mayday is an important henchman. I don't think that. She's great in comparison. She's not Jaws. Um, she's not Odd Job. She's not Knickknack. But it's been a long time since we've had a memorable henchman, and we spent the last two movies talking about how the henchmen just needed something quirky about them, and maybe it was either a look that they needed, uh, or they needed some type of you know weird disfigurement, or they needed just a weird backstory. Mayday has pretty much everything to make a great henchman. It's just the fact that she turns in the end is what makes it more interesting. And she does turn on Zorn and she is crazy. And she still scares me to this day. But for years, the fact that she kind of scared me made me think like, I don't like Mayday. Like I, I, I hated Mayday, but now I can see the value in her being a henchman. She's the, she's scarier than Zorn in this movie because you do see the physical side of her, even though, as you said, it could have been better. You don't see anything physical with Zorn in this movie. Um, the only issue I have is they pull this detonator out. They have, the most massive amount of explosives you've ever seen. Like, great, we got the detonator out. Silicon Valley is safe. Did nobody else see the the red glow of magma <laughs> in the background in this scene that's clearly making its way here? Like, even if they pull that out, within probably 30 minutes, that giant red glow is about to come and flood these explosives with magma. And then this whole place blows up anyways. Like, I, I just couldn't get over that in the background. I don't know why it's there. It's never really explained. It's just, it's very <laughs> distracting to me. Oh, and one more thing I want to add. Zorin, again, just another one of the little things that kills him a bit as a villain for me. Is after this all happens, he's sort of like, you know, high-fiving. Yeah, they're, and when this all happens, it's going to be due to natural causes. Well, aren't all of these flooded bodies going to wash on shore with bullet holes all over them in the future? Like, his entire plan is shot the second one of these bodies turns up. Well, they well, well, owned guns and they went off when they were trying to escape. Well, <laughs> the guns aren't going to wash up there. on shore. Well, that's the other thing I didn't bring up earlier is in the meeting scene, like surely someone in the news would have reported this like Asian guy falling out of a blimp in the middle of <laughs> San Francisco and they wouldn't tie it to this blimp that's just flying Oh, up. that's this just Max and his men falling from his blimps. That's okay. <laughs> but, yeah, I love this mindset. Uh, again, it's a bit of a case of, like, so dark. In some cases, it's hard to tell what's happening. Um, 
kind of agree with you, Colin, in the Zora and stuff. It could have been done way better. But at the same time, it's just so cool and psychotic that I can almost forgive it just because we're seeing this villain who's just mad and insane, just going crazy, which is just cool for a Bond villain. But I agree that in some ways it's a bit unnecessary. Maybe like... Yeah, if like some people escaped and were trying to get to the blimp and he was just standing right at the front of the blimp just shooting everyone as they're running towards him or something would have made for a better thing. Um, but I still like it and it just really is one of the most dark seeds in Bond history, really. Um, just getting seeing these people get massacred when they're already drowning. Um, uh, Mayday turning good... I, I kind of like it, but I still don't really understand why he abandoned her, really. Like, I thought he loved me in that, and it's kind of like, oh, well, you had karate sex. Um, it's <laughs> just kind of, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't play out very well as to why she turns completely. And I just feel like it, it's really awkward to see Mayday, Bond and her, just like, uh, Especially when you know they hated each other in real life. But, um, yeah, then she basically sacrifices herself, which is kind of cool. And there is a line in there, Ben, when she says, oh, I have to push this button or something. But really, it's quite lazy. It's just like, oh, we need Mayday to kill herself, so let's put in a line about a button or something like that. As for Mayday as a character, I feel like she's more of the Nazi super baby thing like she's got super strength more so than Zoran but I feel like they could have been more backstory on Mayday like you don't they don't really delve into it too much as to what she's doing like how and her her and Zoran really met what her purpose is but at the same time she's so damn memorable we're coming off Gobinda and Locke and Krieger and uh, Cha or Chang um we're coming off these henchmen, um, and then we've got her, who really is a return to the 60s or the 70s, maybe, of the memorable villains. Like, she's up there as a memorable one with, um, or henchman or henchwoman. Well, she's up there with Knickknack and Jaws and Oddjob and uh, Teehee and Baron Samity. She is super memorable, and she is tough henchwoman. I just feel like there's... On this rewatch, she did go down a bit. There's just some stuff lacking there in terms of backstory, although most henchmen don't really have backstory, so I can't complain too much. But like, And then her turning isn't done as well as it could, but I would probably put her in top 10 henchmen slash women regardless, um, towards the bottom of the 10 maybe, but she is super memorable and I'm not overly high on this film but the villain and the henchwoman even though they both could have been done better in some areas i think are what makes this film stand out more so than anything else and quiche i love the um you mentioned of course a couple of times that yeah grace jones and Rochmore hated each other um and I love the little fact, uh, according to Roger Moore's biography, Grace Jones had a black dildo with her during the bed scene between her and James Bond. Um, there's a chapter. Why did she need that? I thought she was a man. <laughs> Maybe to, I don't know. Uh, there's a chapter in there somewhere. But yeah, I, I've also read reports. Um, Roger Moore, this, he said this is a, his least favourite of all the Bond films he did. And he sort of particularly paid note to the Walken 
uh, Zoran massacre scene, you know, saying that it was, you know, unnecessary. We didn't need that in a Bond film, too violent and all this sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it. We haven't, we haven't mentioned it all in this movie at all, should I say. David Bowie was approached to play the role of Max Zoran. And can yeah, we just take a moment to realise how awesome that would have been? <laughs> wow. <laughs> he would make a great Bond. Oh, man. apparently he, um, he turned it down to do the Labyrinth, which, I mean, you know, it's iconic in itself. <laughs> but, like, you know, David Bowie as a bot, there are just people. I honestly think Chris... As his character from Labyrinth. I honestly think Christopher Walken would still be in that category of actors who need to be a James Bond villain. Um, but like David Bowie, come on. And apparently Sting was also in mind. I don't know if Sting's ever acted. Has Sting ever acted? Yeah, let's not have Sting in this (laughs) film. Walking fields of gold. Um, was like uh, Simon Le Bon from Duran Duran their third choice? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's just the mullet invasion. Film needed Sting. (laughs) Um, so we then move into the final scene. Um, oh no, Stacy's being kidnapped. Oh, what are we going to do? We're going to jump on a blimp and chase after. <laughs> this sounds like a sentence I never thought I'd say. Jump on a blimp. Um, and they're going towards the Golden Gate Bridge. Zoran's steering it into it to try and take out Bond. Um, and it all basically ends in a battle to the death between Zoran and Bond on the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, I wonder who wins. Of course Bond does. Zoran falls to his death, laughing all the way to his death. Just a, a sadistic prick. Even in death, he's laughing. Um, and then uh, we get, of course, uh, Stacy. She survives, sadly. Uh, I've written here, oh. Stacy jump knocks <laughs> Bond old. <laughs> what? I don't know. I don't know what I've written there. Um, and yeah, they survive. Whoop de doo. Uh, old guy has dynamite. Blimp blows up. That's what I've written. And when they're dangling from the gong, there's never a cab when you need one. I thought that was a funny line. Um, it all sort of closes out. Uh, General Google wants to give Bond some award. Um, oh, that's yep. Yeah, uh, we see the last bit of Lois Maxwell. She's crying. Uh, then we go back to uh, Stacey's house. We got the little robot going along. Pervy Q is um, zooming in on them in the shower, smiling. Um, 007 is alive. He's just cleaning up. And um, he throws the towel in, quite literally, because that's the last bit we ever see him as Bond. Um, and, yeah, A View to a Kill is done. We get the great song plays again in the credits. And um, there we go. I mean, it's, it's sort of a very brief battle, final battle scene compared to a lot of films. I, I Again, I enjoy it. It's the Golden Gate Bridge. I think it makes perfect use to it in my my opinion it's a little bit short they could have made this longer um but you know it's a it's a battle between grandpa bond and christopher walken i mean what more could you want on the golden gate bridge you know it's at a quiche in there and i'm just i'm needing tissues uh i i do really like the golden gate bridge stuff i really don't have any criticisms of it i don't even think that it's that brief i think it's probably about the same length as the the mine escape and the fire uh truck stuff so they like a lot of the bond movies of the moore era they really have like three big climaxes all back to back and this is more of like a personal fight there are a few issues with it again zorin who's been set up as a super freak you know mayday is like the strongest hench woman you've ever seen she's as strong as jaws from what we've seen on screen and or odd job and Zorin has trouble fighting a 57-year-old man on top of a bridge. It doesn't really help his character. But I like the whole tying it up on the Golden Gate Bridge. The fact that they're really filming a real blimp 
not all of it, of course. There are some special effects here, some miniatures. But there are real shots in here of a real blimp on top of the Golden Gate Bridge. There are real shots of two real stuntmen on top of the Golden Gate Bridge. Obviously, those shots, there's only two or three of them in there. But those shots matter, and it looks incredible. And that's the one thing that I think the Bond movies really missed from this point on. Um, definitely the modern ones. I, I love the Daniel Craig movies, but the only thing that's really missing from them is what made Bond movies special all the time was that not only are you going to these locations you've never seen, you could see an action scene that would be exactly the same as what would be in any other action movie, but there's something about it that's bigger. And they could have done this entire sequence just on the you know uh, prop Golden Gate Bridge they had, but they did get two guys standing near the top fighting, and it looks incredible, and you really can't take that away. That makes the scene, even if it's only two or three shots. Another small issue here, the fact that we didn't even talk about him, but there's the other, I don't know if you want to even call him the other main villain in this movie. Oh, yeah, uh, I think your headphones fell out when we talked about him. <laughs> oh, the Dr. Carl Mortner, yeah. Dr. Monocle. The Monopoly, let's, let's call him the Monopoly thank you, guy. With thank his you, thank <laughs> you. That's what I said. Yeah. Um, the Monopoly guy gets the final fight which is a bit of a problem. I would have rather Zorin, again, just showing him more psychopathic, that maybe he, as they're tied up on there, the other two guys in there are kind of, oh, how are we going to get out of the Zorin? And he just gets fed up with them whining, so he throws them right out. The final fight really just would be Bond between Bond and Zorin. When Zorin's dead, I don't care about some Monopoly guy on the blimp. It just <laughs> it's, it's, it's the wrong guy to end the fight scene on. It's a small part of it, but it's just, I, I I couldn't care less, and I always forget he's even in the movie. And I've seen this movie a dozen times, if not more. So uh, it's a minor complaint when you're watching the movie, but ultimately it's really about what you take away. And I think anybody who watches this movie does take away that that Golden Gate fight is incredible, and it looks great, and it's such a good location to end it on. The final scene, <laughs> the only note I have is that Q has a perv bot, <laughs> which I don't know... <laughs> I don't know why this ro- – we set it up at the beginning of the movie. I don't know why this robot exists or why they did not – if they suspected this was where Bond was, why didn't they knock on the door? Um, <laughs> there are so many other things they could have done other than send a robot into the shower. It's just really bizarre. And Q has this kind of awkward like, oh, there's our 007 smile at the end. It's, it's, it's not as bad as the Octopussy final scene. It, it's definitely in line with what's good about the Roger Moore movies is that, that final – scene with bond in bed is always kind of funny it's usually made better by a good one-liner this is not the worst of them but it's definitely not the most memorable way for more to go out on the one thing that his movies really one of the things that his movies made iconic about the james bond series um yeah i love the climax i prefer the big battle ones but this one works so well going gate bridge is just like, if you think of this film, you're probably going to think Golden Gate Bridge. It's on the poster that's so iconic to this film. I love the battle. You definitely get vertigo. Well, I did. Uh, so when there's uh, shots of, like, Zoran hanging over the edge and stuff like that. Um, it's a really cool uh, fight. But I'm with you, Ben. I think it's a bit too short. I would have liked a bit more or maybe some other bad guys to fight or something before this. Um, but that's a minor complaint. I think it's really cool. Um and then, yeah, Klaus in the the blimp, like they just wanted to blow up a Nazi, I guess. Um, 
But I also love Bond tying the blimp to the Golden Gate Bridge. It's pretty epic. Um, But, yeah, it's such a great idea to use this location to the best it can uh, with this fight upon this thing. But, yeah, if he is supposed to be a Nazi super soldier, um, 57-year-old Bond must be pretty damn strong. Must be all that quiche he's been eating that's giving him strength. But... Yeah, um, that's a bit dumb, but it, it doesn't matter because it's such an epic fight. Um, and then the closing scene, that sucks. Like, we're coming off keeping the British end up and attempting re-entry and all these famous Roger Moore endings, and then we got this one, which is the very last scene of Roger Moore as James Bond. It's really not good. Um, and I have to say, I'm, it's a bad way for him to go out, but again, a minor complaint, but... Very upset to see the end of more. I think we'll probably eulogise him more in the uh, 80s episode along with Connery rather than here, but I am very upset. Well, yeah, Dalton too, but... Or not. It's gone gone so fast, the more films, and we were joking, oh, this is going to go on. It's flown by, and I'm kind of a bit bittersweet that it's over. I wouldn't have mind a few more, more ones to talk about. It's one of my favourite periods of Bond and I'm sad to see it over but we can talk about more of that in the 80s episode but yeah I think it's a bit of a flat one for a Roger Moore to go out on cre- uh, creepy Q and dated robot machine thing and town but anyway the battle's good it's going to be interesting actually in the 80s one we're going to be eulogising three Bonds in one episode <laughs> um, yeah they should have ended it with nobody does it better except for Timothy Dalton he's coming up in the living daylights oh, no. uh, I think like you that. needed some sort of like tribute to the guy who's spent the most time well half in of the films role. at this point this is the 14th film he's been in seven of them he's been in 50% yeah. of the James Bond movies at this point so they needed something there there just to celebrate him at the end. Can I just point out another? I'm just, um, you know, help, hoping Colin will uh, take this as a bit of advice for the closing credits. Um, can we add in the quote from Ace Ventura when he goes, and oh, look, it's the Monopoly guy? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking about that when I watched the movie. Um, just, you know, just to add there. But yeah, no, a view to a kill. We don't get, um, uh, you know, James Bond. Will, do we even get a James Bond will return? I don't think we get the title, but yeah. We'll do, it's there. We'll, we'll return. Bond. It is there. Yeah. Okay. Last time, the last film was the last time we ever had mm. the title in the Will Return, and they didn't even get the title right. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, they did, but not what. Yeah, never. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll get some final thoughts on that when we do the rankings and everything. I just want to quickly point out too: this was the very first James Bond film to have a video game um, created for it. Just as a random fact, I thought you would love to I hear. About to say first one to feature a video game. <laughs> what about uh, Domination? No, we'll never bring did that they up. They never again. make the Coleco version, uh, the Coleco Vision version of Domination. <laughs> That doesn't count because it wasn't a Bond film. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we basically now need to get into a few final segments and we'll get some thoughts and we'll look ahead to, obviously, uh, what we're about to get into. But, um, well, I'm in control. I can do this in whatever order I want to. So let's start with our very dear friend... Box Office. And Peter Travers, he is a stupid idiot. But don't read his stuff. Involving rankings and box office and all that sort of stuff. We didn't have any censored moments there for our Peter Travers friend, perhaps there. 
No, all right. Um, okay, <laughs> that fell flat. Um, box office for A View to a Kill. Fifteenth uh, unadjusted, fifty million three hundred twenty-seven thousand nine hundred and sixty, which puts it just below Goldfinger and just above The Spy Who Loved Me. But if you adjust it for inflation, it is all the way down in 21st, uh, 118944000 just below on Her Majesty's Secret Service, laser me, and just ahead of the next film we'll be talking about, The Living Daylights. Um, and our dear friend, Peter Travers... Uh, hello, Peter. I know you're gonna. He's gonna find this one day. I'm like, why are they always tweeting us? Seventeenth, um, he put this at. Um, he put it just ahead of Diamonds Are Forever. There you go, Noah. And uh, just below Octopussy. And his description: uh, Roger Moore's farewell to Bond couldn't come soon enough. What's good? Uh, mesmeric bottle blonde Christopher Walken as Max Zorin hell bent on global domination as a product of Nazi experiments Grace Jones Zowie Star as his henchman and Duran Duran's title song otherwise I'm out even more than 57 later more late admitted I was only about 400 years years old too old for the part so you like Peter Travers just read the Wikipedia and <laughs> hasn't seen these films <laughs> yeah who would do that um <laughs> <laughs> I just asked you, random, random Christopher Walken fact, he has a cat called Flapjack. Uh, <laughs> Not as good as our uh, Bernie Casey fact. <laughs> and he also has a cat called Bowtie, and he's been married to the same lady for 46 years. Oh, and they've got no kids. How sweet. Um, that They're married, not that they don't have kids. That's probably sad if they can't have kids. Anyway, uh, let's get into... <laughs> they might have chose not to. <laughs> let's, boo, what are, we, what are we doing next? I think we're going to do a bit of Mr... Mr. Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang. Um, Mr. Ranking? <laughs> no. Oh, Mr. Big Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang. My headphones fell. That, that's, that's fine. Um, so, I, I'm pretty confident here. I'm feeling the vibe. Yes, um, Bond, James Bonds, two. Yep. Yes. Yep. And about five Bond, oh, stock James <laughs> stock. Stocks and a couple of St. S- S- John Smythe. Smythe, James Sinjin Smythe. And the Bond, James Bonds came within about two minutes of each other, didn't they? I felt they were very yeah. quickly one and after each Why other. Why does all these other alter egos have James, and like James Stock and James Sinjin Smythe? <laughs> Someone's going to catch on. <laughs> um, Martinis. It's a, it's a pretty unusual name, James. It's not like yeah. a lot of people have it. <laughs> James is my middle name. Yeah, um, Touche. Anyway. Um, no martinis? One martini. Hang on. Where was the one? Pre-title sequence. He says, I've got the martinis. But he didn't say shake ah. and not stirred. We've had well, plenty of martinis without shake and not stirred in the past. What? Yeah, I with Noah. That would count. Oh, get out of it. <laughs> but it's a freaking martini. What do you mean, get out <laughs> of it? We don't have... The- Okay, if if you're looking, if anybody listening is looking at our page right now, it says martinis, not martinis shaken, not stirred. Well, if that's the if, case, if then we, if he just says Bond and, and he doesn't say James well, at the end of it, we can count that. No, we've got to go back and change the martini right, count then, because we've counted about four martinis without shaking, not Keep stirred. your quiche on. Um... <laughs> Now, I think we've got a record here when it comes to um, diddly-daddling in the bedroom department. Four, which is a... is This this is a record, isn't it, for an Eon film? Uh, 
It's a tied mm-hmm. record. What's the top? What's the other one? Did he rompy pomp before? Russell with love. He got two gypsies. Uh, Thunderball was it? He got four as well. Oh, I swear he's only had four in this. Film. Oh no! You only live twice. He had four from Russia with love. He had four. I think you're making this up now. <laughs> from Russia with love, oh, Tanya, our, the our, two our, gypsy ladies, and Sylvia. That's four. Ben. You are the one who updates the website, and you have four on from Russia with You only live twice, Aki. All right, both of you shut up. Let's move on to kills. Um, Helga and Bruce. Ben's credibility is going out the window this week. It went out the window when I started talking about Mean Girls. Now, um... (laughs) So who were the four? It was... Random woman in Iceberg. girl. Bartholberg girl with Martini. Yeah, Mayday. (laughs) Mayday and Paula. Paula. Tchaikovsky. Uh, kills. Three. Five. Uh, no. No. Yeah, I have five. There's the two in the helicopter at yeah. the beginning. And yeah. then there's Zorin, and we've, we've counted in the past. You might as well count the two guys who go down with the airship at the end, too. Yeah, they're bomb kills. Yeah. But doesn't... No, well, I didn't count that because he lit the... The guy in the blimp lit the dynamite. Bond didn't do anything to do with it. They're going to have to go back and change every kill No, but this is a bit different. Bond didn't have any role in them dying. You you didn't count the guys Well, he didn't have any role in Kamal Khan dying, and you were arguing for that last week. But we didn't count... you counted the Lotus kills. But we didn't count the moon... (laughs) Well, we didn't. They didn't count. We didn't count... Which he had zero to do with. But we didn't... I was questioning whether you would count the guy he kicked in the shin earlier in the movie. (laughs) We didn't count Moonraker guys going over the waterfall because you said that that had more to do with it than this bloody kill. We did count yeah, But Bond tied the blimp up. They were dead the second that blimp yeah. was tied. But, but Bond tied the blimp. But they didn't blimp. Oh, whatever. Five, you're idiots. Let's put it this way. If it wasn't for James we're Bond, idiots. I'd not be dead. <laughs> Bond killed men because his Lotus car alarm malfunctioned. <laughs> we're the idiots. They are, more va- they are more valid kills than this. <laughs> These are Bond kills. Go back and watch this that is... kill video count that I shared, and they do not include this, and they include the Lotus Bombs. They agree with me. They're, yeah, they're and smart. they also got pretty much everything else wrong per every fill. <laughs> yeah, let's 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 remind the audience that this is Ben Waterworth, who just starts out most climax by saying, "I don't even know. I put down eighty six. <laughs> I put down thirty for the warehouse." Yeah. <laughs> At least I tried to count the warehouse, unlike some. Um, all right, so with five... Start on the warehouse. This is always an argument. That's what's funny. <laughs> I need a fucking key. That was so bong kills, those ones. Um, all right, yeah. so five, four, one, two. So that brings up the total. So he went from 15 in Octopussy to five. Jesus, he's getting old. Um, 164 kills in total now. We're up to 39... Um, roots, uh, eight martinis, which is his first in a while then, and 16 Bond, James Bond. And obviously, we'll give a Roger Moore total at the end of the 80s. How many Zoran kills were there? Uh, fuck. Oh, what do you want me to guess? Well, I'll I just up your head, man. Give us the number. <laughs> 79. 50. I put 30 down. Don't know if that's right. 79. All right. Uh, let's move into <laughs> this bit. Oh, it's the hole, the hole with the classic scene. Love the old Hall of Fame. <laughs> now, don't be bitter because I counted a martini. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, yeah, this is 
I I I want to put up the Eiffel Tower sequence because I think that's pretty iconic with the jump and sort of. This scene doesn't yeah. have any for the Hall of Fame. Okay. Well, <laughs> I yeah yeah let's ditch the Hall of Fame this week. That's just Noah trying to get us to stop playing him singing. Death by Do peace. We have to bring back the Hall of Shame from last. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think that the Eiffel Tower stuff works. It, it is yeah. a good stunt. It's something that, you know, we've never seen before. And I think that the chase stuff in Paris afterwards is quite good. So Eiffel Tower yeah. with Paris chase? Yeah. I also feel that there's that one shot of Bond when he turns and shoots at Mayday, which is always on the promo steals of him on the Eiffel Tower. So, uh, yeah, Golden Gate Bridge for sure. That's mm-hmm. iconic to this film. Um, <laughs> Mayday and Bond having sex. <laughs> No. Jenny Flair. Beach Boys! <laughs> Jenny, Beach Boys! Off, how is it we haven't talked about the iconic introduction of Jenny Flex, a character that doesn't even do anything for the rest of the movie? That Ben forgot her name. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and Ben, that's your character. The, the quirky name who does nothing in the movie. Bond bikes a quiche. <laughs> what do you think we'll get more shit for? The quiche or the Beach the Boys? <laughs> Fire truck chase. But that's cool, uh, I, I vote still for not. Tchaikovsky tickling Polo's <laughs> bubbles. <or> oh. <laughs> um, I vote for I'm happiest in the saddle. <laughs> the only organism we get in the field. I love the Texas accent that went along with well, that. Well, I, sound, I sounded like freaking William Shatner before, so now I've just gone into J.W. Pepper. Uh <laughs> Mind scene, but that's not really a Hall of Fame thing. I'm, yeah, I'm honestly, I'm honestly standing by Beach Boys. You can laugh all you want, but that's one of the scenes that gets no, talked about no. a lot in this film. I'm with you and enjoying it, but that's the Hall of Shame for most people. Yeah, it's not. I, I still the, just the fact that it's nowhere near as good as any of the other ski scenes we saw. It's still great, but it's not even the best ski. We scene. put Bambi and Thumper in the Hall of Fame. I think uh, that was. That was lack of options, which we're kind of running which into exactly. now. Yeah, let's just put Bambi and Thumper up again. Um, yeah. I, I think fire truck scene, scene, even though I don't think it's that iconic. The fire truck, um, uh, that's tough. I'm putting it up, but I don't know. I feel like a Mayday be... scene needs to go in there somewhere. I just feel... We've sh- got one. No, oh, well, you don't see We're a face. We're not putting karate sex in here. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree there should be a Mayday one, but there's not really an iconic one outside of the Paris chain. The Bond Mayday sex scene is there. It's <laughs> not going in the hallway. I want to be able to sleep tonight. You're terrifying me. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't have had a rule where it has to be three, because <laughs> it just kind of defeats the purpose if we can't think of one. Hmm. I, I would say of all the ones we've mentioned so far, probably the fire truck. Um, oh, yes, sir. But... I don't yeah. think it's that iconic, but out of all of them, I'm putting it up there. Yeah. Yeah. Fire truck. Yeah. <laughs> Ben's like, I love this movie. This movie's great. And even he's like, uh, what are we going to do for the last scene? Well, in my Am defense, go to the races? in my defense, Noah Diamonds Are Forever also had to struggle to get some up. So, you know. Well, yeah, I'm not denying that. Good. Uh, all right, so go ahead. Uh, we've got the Eiffel Tower slash Paris Chase. Um, not chasing Paris Carver. They're actually in the city, Paris. <laughs> um, the Golden Gate Bridge finale and the fire truck chase. Yeah, <sighs> right. If I accidentally type in Beach Boys. Unless we want to go with just the simple fact of Zorin's kills, which 
I have issues with that scene, but it is even for the wrong reasons, it is iconic. So that's a possibility. What too. about the blimp meeting? It's a oh, rip off of. <laughs> Oh, it's a ripoff of Goldfinger, but it's iconic. I've written this down oh. in ink. I've got no room on my paper to cross anything off. <laughs> yeah, it's not like you can't just start a new page. I, I'm I poor. I can't afford a new paper. Page. I done. honestly think that like people who have seen this movie a million times might be like, where was the fire truck? Where was this Paris chase? But they're going to remember Zoran's killing spree. And I'm not a fan of how it played All out, right, but it is iconic. Zoran... Murder. Well, are we going to take a vote, or are you just going to reserve ready down before Noah <laughs> oh, well, has a state? Well, we did From take a vote with the kills. You two were right. We just went Change with it. it so. <laughs> I'm going based on how this episode has gone. <laughs> Followed by the executive. Just, I think we should go with the kill count. All right, I'm writing it down. <laughs> no, those Let's two counted in the blimp. Um, it's probably more iconic than the fire truck, but let's just definitely. move on. Yeah, all right, cool. Bambi and Thumper joins them. Alright, let's let's move into this bit. Rankings, Rankings it up. Um This is gonna be interesting. Um save me till last. Golan, you go first. Um this one's pretty easy for me. As I said, this is not one of the best Bond movies. Uh, it's really nowhere near one of the best Bond movies. But of all the, I would consider, I'm not going to call them bad Bond movies because there's no bad Bond. But of all my least favorite Bond movies, this is probably the best of the bunch. So I'm putting it, it'll be my third last. So ahead of Diamonds Are Forever and ahead of You Only Live Twice. Below the man with the golden gun, Moonraker, Live and Let Die. So this will end up being, what is that, 12th for me. Well, <laughs> We can't even agree on where Colin's ranking. No, you're right. I'm no, 12th. Sorry. No, 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 you are right. Sorry. I'm, I'm... No, no, my, my bad. I was. This is why Ben can't count two men in the blimp, because he didn't realize there were two men. He can't add them. I just want to quickly point out that I'm going to save that uh, voice uh, grab there where you said there are no bad Bond films. I'm going to play that on loop when we get to die another day. Could have done um, it on Never Seen Ever Again. No, well, that's not a bomb film, so. <laughs> um, so, I guess I'm going if you want to save to last, Ben. Um, this is the 14th film. Is it? How many have we got? Well, this is the 14th, 14th. so you've done 13 so far. <laughs> what did I have at the Thunderball? Um, no, I lost track because I thought this was the 13th film for a minute. Um, this film... I enjoy it. I always enjoy it, but it is seriously got some issues with it. Uh, the pacing is really off. Um, there's almost no action, which can be good, but in this case, not really. It's just 50 minutes in a horse racing place, um, gambling, granny penny. Um, the theme's great. The intro title sequence I don't love. The pre-titles is just okay. The car chases are just okay. I enjoy it, but whatever. Zoran and Mayday, as we've discovered, are great and very memorable. I'm going to put them up high when we rank the villains and hench- henchmen slash women, but they do have issues with them. Um, Stacy, as we've established, is not the greatest. Uh, Chuck Lee is kind of a random character, as is Gogol and Paula's inclusion in the film. The climax is good, if not a bit short. Then we have crazy Nazi Klaus blowing up. Um, we've got 
super old Roger Moore, which doesn't bother me too much, but it is there in some scenes where you're like, oof, really? Um, but, yeah, overall, I enjoy the film. It's just, in terms of all the Bond films, it just it does not rank up there um, compared to some of the ones in the top, and I'm including Diamonds Are Forever. Um, it's, but as I keep saying, I, I feel bad for saying all that because I do enjoy watching the film every time I put it on, but it's just every time I watch it, it goes down a bit. And I'm going to say, and Colin will be happy about this, um, I'm going to say at this point in time, I'm sorry, but this one goes in 14th Ooh. place. Um, Ooh, so, Colin, Thunderball is... Yeah, Jeez. I was worried that Thunderball may end up being the bottom, but finally it's gone... And I need to reiterate here, just because it's 14th place here, that could mean it ends up in 14th place. It won't, because there's better ones than this. But just because it's 14th doesn't mean it's the bottom film. It's just at this point in time, 14 films, I think we've seen 13 better ones. But I need to reiterate, I still really enjoy this. So don't say, oh my god, he put it there. I, I probably enjoy it more than the average Bond fan, but to me... 13 other ones way better and a lot of issues with this film even though it is enjoyable oh my god bye bye roger um (laughs) (laughs) what was that south park (laughs) that was mean girls um this this film is awesome it's got so much going for it i'm not bored in this film at all it's got one of the greatest villains of all time one of the greatest hench women men of all time uh, it's got some of the my favourite sort of scenes in terms of locations of all time. One of the best songs of all time. This movie is just fun. Um, it's it's such an underrated film in my opinion. Um, and I just I can't not enjoy this film every single time I watch it. Noah came out on a limb and put Diamonds Are Forever at number one, and he got laughed oh, at. No. Oh. no, no, no. I am not putting this at number one. Oh, Thank you. However. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what was that? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, um, that's the sound I make after karate sex normally, but it's reserved for this as well. Just hold your no, ho- hold a, your little horses. Sigh of relief. Hold your horses at Ascot. I haven't I haven't said where I'm putting it. I said just not number one. Spy Love Me is safe. Honor Majesty's Secret Service is safe. However, Goldfinger is not number three. Put it up there. View to a Kill is oh, the third best. Oh. I, I just, it is so good. The bad re- it's the bad remake of Goldfinger and it's a head? But, but this has got Christopher Walken in it. As Finally, as a- I have lived down my <laughs> reputation. Thank you, Ben. And if Klaus Maria Brandauer had played the exact same role in the exact same way, we'd be like, what a boring villain. Who cares if it's Christopher Walken? <laughs> nah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm putting it up there. It's it's there. Number three. Put it there. Bang. Done. Now we've got and goodbye, Catherine. Princess. And goodbye, oh. Linda. <laughs> and goodbye, Martin. And all of our loyal listeners. <laughs> oh, third best. So what else is it above just... Some of the few that it's above that you've got. Do you them. want me to go through? Okay, so number three. So just to soak it in. Okay, so below it, Goldfinger, For Your Eyes Only, From Russia With Love, The Man With Golden Gun, <laughs> Diamonds Are Forever, You Only Live Twice, Doctor No, Octopussy, Thunderball, Live and Let Die, Moonraker. No. <laughs> let's just look at Noah's again, though. The Spy Who Loved Me, no, Diamonds don't go back Are to that. Forever. No, let's go back to Ben for a second. <laughs> What's wrong with this picture? Diamonds Are Forever, Ahead of Honor, Majesty's Secret Service, and From Russia With Love. Come on. 
<laughs> that all becomes oh. void when. Oh, anyway, I can't wait. It's all a matter of personal I can't wait till we get to die another day. Um, <laughs> it's all personal opinion. Now we just need to wait for Colin's ridiculous, stupid decision, as we've both made one. <laughs> All right, there we go. Put that behind us. That's it. Roger Moore's done. See you, Rog. We'll talk a little bit about you in the 80s one because that's about how old you were in this film. Um, so um, thanks for your service, Rog, uh, and thanks for your service. A view to a kill. Looking forward now, we get into two movies, basically, to close out this decade. Well, we're going to do one at a time, folks. But um, Mr. Timothy Dalton's coming to join the party. We're going to Wales. He's the only Bond in the village. Um, we've got two very <laughs> interesting movies, um, starting off with Living Daylights. Um, I really feel that when it comes to Timothy Dalton, you love him or you hate him. I really feel there's very rarely middle ground for Mr. Dalton. I personally am on the love him bandwagon. I think he did what Craig did before Craig ever did it, and I think he probably pulls it off a little bit better in some aspects. And we're going to have a lot of debates of this because I know somebody on this absolutely just does not like these films. But The Living Daylights is fun. It's it's almost a sort of a reboot, you could almost say, of James Bond. Um, and this is the time when James Bond really was falling out of um, audiences' hearts. Like, James Bond really could have ended in the 1980s and, it, you know, whether that's down to Timothy Dalton or just other films that were happening at that point, who knows. But it's it's fun, The Living Daylights. It's got great action, great locations. Um, I think it's got a great storyline. Um, it's it's just, it's a, it's a lot of fun. I probably, out of the two Dalton films, my least favourite, but that's still not to say that I don't like this film because I love this film. Did you so. just say Living Daylights is your what? least favourite Dalton film? Yes. <laughs> You had a 50-50 shot of getting it right in your skin. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm a huge License to Kill fan. Bring that on. But no, Living Daylights, let's get to it. I'm so excited. I just want to start talking about it now, even though I haven't watched it yet. But whatever. Living Daylights, aha, bring it on. Um, yeah, I'm the one Ben was referring to. I'm not a Timothy <laughs> Dalton fan. I'm not even a fan of these movies. I will say this. I think The Living Daylights is one that's slowly grown on me over the years. The reason I say slowly is because for whatever reason, I just I, I don't think these movies have the same energy. Uh, there's not, not a lot special about them. They're kind of just very generic 80s. So whereas I can bring myself to watch Diamonds Are Forever, You Only Live Twice, View to a Kill, which are my bottom movies, I can bring myself to watch those just on a whim just because I'm in the mood. The only time I ever really watch the Dalton movies is when I'm doing a full rewatch of the series, which is basically every time you know a new Bond movie comes out. And I will say I'm usually more surprised with what I do enjoy about Living Daylights than what I remember, because it's one of those movies that one of the earliest Bond movies I watched, and it was nothing like the ones I had seen up until that point. I don't think that Dalton's really that good. I think that he is probably the most boring bond and i think he's like christopher walken he's given too much credit but the first half of this credit yeah i I, well and again that's maybe not saying much but there are a lot of people out there like dalton is the most realistic bond dalton's the best bond most people who know me will think that i hate timothy dalton that i'm one of those camps that hates him i don't hate him i just don't think that he's nearly as good as the others and maybe that's because he didn't have the time to get into it. i wonder if roger moore only had his first two movies if i would have had the same opinion probably not because he at least could carry a joke 
Uh, but <laughs> the, first, the first half of this movie is the stuff that I usually enjoy. And I, I said before, I'm not one of these people who just believes if you're sticking to Fleming stuff, then that means it's good. Because I went on record as saying that Goldfinger the movie was a huge improvement over the Goldfinger book, where which I think was one of Ian Fleming's most flawed novels. They do a really good job with the first half of this movie. The second half, I'll be interested to see if my opinion changes, you know, more picking it apart and analyzing. It could go one way or the other. I could enjoy the second half more or I could completely hate it. Usually I come out of this just really disliking the second half of Living Daylight. There are a lot of problems I'm going to be pointing out. So it's it's going to be some fun debates between me and Ben. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ben's not going to be going to my opinion just to be the ultimate decision like he did on this episode. Uh, <laughs> there's going to be there's going to be some disagreements next week. Um. Well, firstly, I'm very sad to see the end of Moore, but we'll talk about him more in the 80s. But I very much enjoyed it. And, well, I'll get your opinion on it later, Ben, in the 80s episode. But that was kind of a hot topic before we started. So I'll be interested to talk about that in a few episodes' time. Dalton, I think I am that middleman that Bond said, uh, Ben said that doesn't exist, although I am definitely lean more towards Ben's side in this one. Um I I I'm kind of so mixed on him because I do really enjoy his performance, but then when when you're out of the zone of watching his films, then it's kind of like oh yeah, Dalton's that kind of middle one. And then when you watch it, it's like yeah, he's really good. I really enjoy this. And then you watch some other ones, and you uh, yeah, Dalton. Um, but I I do very much enjoy his take on the character. Um, I'm excited although a little upset that we're getting into a new period and there's going to be some more debates, which I'm interested in, because a lot of these more ones we did kind of agree a lot on. Maybe not this one, but a lot of them we did. I really enjoyed The Living Daylights. It doesn't come without its flaws. There are definitely some things in there that could be heavily improved on, but I think they had to go somewhere after seven more films that were semi-similar and they took took it a bit too far. And I think they did a good job at bringing something new. I'm not sure if the audiences enjoyed it at the time. Um, I can tell you right now, Living Daylights is above License to Kill in my rankings. I'll spoil that right now. Um, but I, I do very much enjoy it. It's, it's kind of an epic in a way and it's, it's really a fun film with some great action, which is different to uh, this film. So bittersweet to see more go but i'm very excited to get into this new period which won't last for very long at all we'll be done in two episodes time for dalton but yeah a change is coming in double oz seven the first james bond film i will say that was uh, made after my birth is the living daylights it was made the same year i was born so just a random fact for the ben fans out there um all right (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of them i've gained a few this episode i can feel it in my waters all right let's uh let's close this off it's been a lot of fun um we're seeing the view when it's going away because it's been killed um Follow us online, as always, Double Oz 7 on Twitter, on Facebook, um, iTunes. Yes, we have it. Uh, subscribe to us on there and um, probably a few other podcasting services that we aren't aware that we're on because we always get told about it eventually. Now, ah, why isn't it working on this service? We don't put it on there. Other people just pick it up. But we always appreciate your support, your feedback. Leave us a rating on iTunes, actually. Catherine, um, you know, Linda, 
it would be fantastic. Uh, my name They're long gone. Let's be honest. <laughs> they've they've invited their friends along for Dalton. They love Dalton. Um, I'll close it out by saying my name is Ben, and enjoy the following piece of quiche. And I'm Colin. This episode had me a little restless, but I got off eventually. Nothing to do with mayday. Uh, my name's Noah, and four eggs, one and a half cup of milk, three tablespoons <laughs> of butter melted, half a cup of self-raising flour, one and a half cups of cheese grated, one cup of mixed vegetables finely chopped, oh, one it. cup of bacon rashers finely chopped, one bowl and one muffin pan, and you got yourself a pretty damn good quiche, James Bond 007 license to cook. Oh, I'm so fucking hungry. Um... <laughs> Come on, Flo, move your ass and get some quiche. Good night. The name is Bond. James Bond. Is he? Are you? Yes. And I'm Dick Tracy and you're still under arrest. I'm Jenny Flex. Of course you are. I've been waiting for you to take care of me personally. You slept well? A little restless, but I got off eventually. You amuse me, Mr. Bond. It's not mutual. Come on, Luke! Get a wig on! It's women's lip. They're taking over the Teamster. Mr. St. John Smith. St. John Smith. Mr. Smith. St. John Smith. St. John Smith. By the way, the name is St. John Smith. James. Where's the fire? On your rear end. Hey, voila. Quiche, they cabinet. Sounds interesting. What is it? A moment. Mm. When you're ready, Tibbet. Come along, Tibbet. Stop wheezing. Mm. <sighs> well, don't stand there panting, Tibbet. Start the unpacking. Oh, my lord, Tibbet. Look at the state of my clothes. How on earth do you pack my bags? Sorry, sir. This is damned obsequious. What the devil's wrong with these shoes? I don't know how long you expect to remain in my employ. What would you be without us? Biological experiment? <laughs> A physiological freak? I'm happiest in the saddle. More! More power! He's a psychopath. But Mayday and my men! Yeah, a convenient coincidence. And I thought that creep loved me! She must take a lot of vitamins. There's never a cab when you want one. If you can get through to Howe's office, you'll find him dead. Yeah, we found him and we found this gun. This yours? Yes, thanks. Polar Ivanova. James Bond. Tickle my Tchaikovsky. Oh, James.